Hello, welcome to the quarter to three movie podcast for the survivalist. My name is Tom Chick. I am here with Christian Miltinsky. Um not going to actually say anything for the first 17 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> and with a tagline for the survivalist, Kelly Wand. My favorite grandma since the visit. <laughs> <laughs> the strong opening from Kelly Wand. Yeah, it's a tough one, huh? <laughs> what else you got? Uh, finally, a post-apocalypse movie about Australians. What? Kelly Wand. Oh, That's dumb, Kelly. <laughs> Shut up, Kelly. Stick Kelly Wand in accents. <laughs> what a disaster. Oh, those aren't Australians? Well, that we'll get into that in a little bit, won't we? Whatever. What? Geography nerd. <laughs> what else do you have, Kelly Wand? Yeah. I only have one more. All right. The first ten minutes are like the ten years of Alien Covenant where Fast Ben are just hung out on the planet growing wheat listening to John Denver. <laughs> that one's for the poster. Very good. Right, guys. Chuck Kelly. Uh, well, this week we didn't see, we could have seen Baywatch, uh, except, wait, except Germany or whatever. We could have seen Pirates of the Caribbean, except it was Pirates of the Caribbean. So instead, Dingus, we didn't want to do those. We weaseled out of it. Tell the listeners without spoiling things what we saw instead. Well, <laughs> this week we saw The Survivalist. Hmm? A 2015, um, 16, 17, I'm not sure how we're going to label this thing, but uh, it's labeled as a 2015 British thriller movie about how you can't eat oil. The movie was written and directed by Stephen Fingleton. Why are you making fun uh, of what you, Why are you saying his name like it? It's just Fingleton. Just throw it out there. It's just Fingleton. Don't call it. I didn't know Marillion was a movie. I just love the name Fingleton. Okay. Stephen Fingleton. I just love that name. So I wanted to give it a little time to roll off my tongue. Stephen Fingleton. Uh, it stars Martin McCann, Mia Goth, and Alwyn Fuere. All right. So you, did, did you look that up or did you know – how did you figure out how to say those last two words? Well, at least the last word. Uh, I listened to Stephen Fingleton give an interview, and I heard him say, Owen Fuere, and he said that she was an Irish and French actress. And so the name – because in some, in some ways that it's written, it has an accent on both E's. And so I was trying to figure out how to do that. So I just listened to Stephen Fingleton say it, and he says, Owen Fuere, and I love the way it sounds. I think you're looking for every opportunity to, stay, to say Stephen Fingleton's Stephen last name. Stephen Fingleton. Yeah. <laughs> but also she has two uh, like two of the W words in her in her name then. She has a win and a where. Uh, Owen, Owen Fuere. I love what, her name. What's Harry Potter's owl's name? Isn't uh, Owen? Margaret. Hagrid. Oh, Hagrid. Oh. Oh, where did I get Owen? I wasn't even close. No, it's not right. Hagrid. It's not oh. Hagrid. It's Dumbledore. It's Olwen, uh, then. In that case, you guys safe. don't know. Harry Potter's owl is named Olwen, too. I bet you guys didn't know that. The Survivalist has not, has not gotten an official MPAA rating since they couldn't be arsed, but would oh. probably be rated R for nudity and smoking. Well, they just didn't get – they didn't need one because they didn't have a theatrical release in the U.S. The MPAA, there, it wasn't released here, and so no one cares. 
Well, there is a release date for twenty for well, there was a there was a, I think Telluride in, t- in 2016, and then there is a 2017 New York release. But you're right, there isn't anything that would uh, that would catch the MPAA's uh, attention. Right, but you're right, Dingus. It would have gotten an R. Why? Well, you know, we're gonna let Kelly Wan handle that question. Just okay, quick. good. Yeah. Kelly Wan, hold that thought. Let me first tell the listeners uh, it didn't make any money because it wasn't released here. I mean, I'm sure it made some, but it it has no box office rankings that I can discuss. Uh, it idiots didn't see it. Cinema Score did not pull uh, idiots to see what they would think of the survivalists. So we don't know. I'm guessing C minus. Hmm. That's my guess. Don't know for sure. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 97%. Out of 36 reviews they have posted, only one of them is negative. So very <laughs> high on Rotten Tomatoes. Metacritic, there's only nine reviews on Metacritic, but the average amongst them is 80. Kelly Wand, now this might involve some spoilers. Uh, I would like you to let oh. the listeners know what things in The Survivalist might merit an R rating. What what should parents be concerned about if they if they want to like fire up the survivalist to show their small children? Well, thankfully, someone on IMDb posted something about for their parents' guide for the survivalist because a lot of parents want to watch this movie with their kids. Right. So I guess one guy did. One father did. <laughs> and and he took notes. It seems like took notes. <clears throat> so some of these are spoilers. I should warn you, if you haven't seen The Survivalist, you're about to get an earful. Under sex and nudity. The camera is looking down on a man's penis as he starts to masturbate. We see his flaccid penis as he pulls back his foreskin. The penis is clear for about half a minute. And he repeated the action twice as practice of masturbation. Did Ben Foster write this for IMDb? Yeah, yeah I'm curious That's about great. this. That's awesome, Ben Foster. <laughs> I uh, I didn't know he could act too. <laughs> Glad he's getting work. One of the male characters was completely naked with appearance of penis, <laughs> testicles, and buttocks for a period of thirty seconds. <laughs> As opposed to half a minute. A female character is topless for a long time and then had sex with a man. Parentheses. The intercourse act is not seen, but introductions suggest it. Close the parentheses. A lady, i.e., asks the male main character of the movie not to ejaculate inside the woman. Female main character in the movie is naked from the back and wash herself examining the menstrual cycle. Parentheses, buttocks are clear for a long time. Parentheses. (laughs) Pubic hair and the labia majora are clear in one of the scenes for one of the women who is trying to make abortion. Wow. Old women is swimming completely naked. Two ladies is completely naked, wrapping themselves by hot water in a try to warmth a man. Violence and gore, profanity... 
alcohol, drug smoking, and frightening intense scenes are blank. <laughs> All right, so that's what should be on the poster. That those that should be in that little box ben for disclaimers. Foster. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Foster, for coming to Germany to read that. Have a nice flight back. Bye. Oh, it's not the that's the closet. All right. Bye. <laughs> There he goes. What Very actor. good. Kelly Wan, that's going to be a tough act to follow now if you were to perhaps deliver us a survival ops list. Oh, God. I AKA that was a, synopsis, a synopsis of the survival list. That was not it. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> There's more. Oh, no, that was it. I was going to joke. That was the survival ops. That was my joke. That was a good one. Cause not that, was that a, there was more written by Ben Foster. Well, what what do you have? So that was just straight out of IMDb. That was a concerned parent taking notes, putting that up on the parental guide for the survivalist. That's Ben Foster's writing. We don't know for sure he wrote it, but it certainly sounds like he oh, read. That's it. true. Yeah, it's a good point. Same thing. So Kelly Wand, what? Let's have some of your writing uh, with a synopsis of the survivalist. All right, the survivalopsis. A red line and a blue line on a graph show us that when we run out of humans, we also run out of oil and graphs. I make a note to myself to buy stock in graph futures as soon as I can find a pen to write the note with. An Australian man with a beard and a ponytail named, according to IMDb, Survivalist, has a radish garden. I feel like I'm stuck as Foster now. It's really annoying. Sometimes for fun, he puts a bear trap out that catches naked white people for him to bury. (laughs) (sighs) Take forever. The bear trap also catches a harmonica and a picture of Julianne Moore. He plays one of these with his mouth and hangs harmonica on a wall. One day he washes his balls using a water world Gilligan's Island mousetrap thing because today he'll be doing something for which he wants to be especially presentable, picking mushrooms. To celebrate the balls, he pees in a flower pot then gathers some bark and puts it in a paint can. (laughs) I lean over to Grizzly Adams sitting beside me and go, this is all shit I already do. Bring on the apocalypse in Australia. (laughs) One night, the survivalist sees a spider on his lantern, so he has a dream about being chased in slow motion by a guy in a suit. Like a scene from Runaway Bride, if it had been a horror movie. When he wakes up, he plays the harmonica some more and hangs out with some rain. One day he sets out some nets, I think, to try and scare his radishes when a jump scare touches him on the shoulder. (laughs) He screams and leaps away, drawing his knife like Melania does when Trump touches her shoulder. (laughs) But luckily, survivalist calms down because he decides that we all only imagined that shot. One day, an old woman and her nubile young sissy SpaceX daughter show up by tripping over his cowbell. Tom nudges me and whispers, Grandpa movies are the ones I don't like. (laughs) 
survivalist comes out with the shotgun and goes, you damn kids and old ladies, leave me cowbell alone. It's not a toy. The humans, I mean. Cows consider them entertainment Santas. (laughs) (laughs) The old woman's all, spare any crops. I have many fine treasures in trade. She holds out a hand covered in Kleenex and grandly whips it off to reveal a couple wooden pennies, an earring made out of goat cheese, the dead rat from Girl with All the Gifts, a toy monkey with one symbol and a dusty comb missing all its teeth. She's all, you can plant these instead. Imagine trees hung with these instead of stupid fruit. He's all, yeah, I think I'm just going to stick with Operation Radish for now. Thanks, though. Try not to step in me bear trap. It's for naked men. The women don't say anything. He sighs and goes, all right, fine, come in. But just one bowl of soup each, and then off you go. Ten minutes later, he comes back into the living room to see them slurping eagerly. Grandma's all, mmm, this soup's amazing. What is this, cabbage? Got some stuck between my teeth. Eh, that's me bathtub. That's me bath water. It's just getting the soup for you. Heat water to lukewarm takes me three days normally. The grandma's all, can we have some more? He sighs with irritation and ladles out more bath water. They slurp it down excitedly. Then the girl yawns, gets up, and goes over to his knife collection. She picks one up. He growls warily and draws his pistol. She's all, it's just to shave you. Jeez. Scowling, he lowers the gun. She reaches over and picks up a bottle labeled Poison. He draws his pistol again. She's all, it's my favorite band and perfume. What? You need to chill, dude. That night, they celebrate by locking Granny in the potato room. A survivalist tries to shut the door on. <laughs> Granny's all, uh, I'm more age appropriate, FYI. <laughs> also, don't come inside her. He rolls his eyes. Rules, rules, rules. Turns out later he wasn't listening. The next morning, as the ladies pack their sundries up, <laughs> Granny's all, hey, uh, we could stay on, help you till the land. He's all, it's not luck. Suddenly, SpaceX tricks him by shaving him, so they move in. <laughs> women tricky crafty after a couple nights of bliss granny gets lonesome again and comes creeping into bed while survivalist is out taking a leak granny's all spacex know what's fun threesomes spacex yawns granny's all fine Clearly obvious this idiot only has enough food for two. So, new plan. You steal his shotgun shells during sex, and I'll kill him with a shovel while he's working on the weed tomorrow. SpaceX yawns again. Granny's all, uh, speaking of twosomes, you and I never hooked up, and there's a saying, once you've had old, it's like catching him. Shit, here he comes. Okay, act natural. Eventually, everyone gets in the right bed and falls asleep. The next morning, Spacek goes down to the lake to wash her when a man with a beard tricks her by kidnapping her and dragging her to some unknown grass. (laughs) Uh, That's just me watching the movie. In the garden, survivalist sits up, then turns around to look at Granny standing over him with an upraised shovel clutched in both hands and her face clenched with murder. He's all, speaking of shoveling, where's Spacek? He heads to the grass while Granny realizes her joints are locked up and she's stuck holding the shovel over her head for the rest of the movie. Embarrassing. 
survivalist crawls strategically into the grass and discovers his shotgun's empty. He's all, damn those mischievous little sheep pranksters. He tricks the bearded guy by getting shot by him and then SpaceX stabbing him through the throat. I mean, the beard. Wait, what? When Survivalist wakes up, his bullet wound's got maggots on it, and he's naked in bed. He's all, Jesus, just once I wish I could catch a break. He looks up to see Spacek disrobing and getting ready to lie naked up against him. He's all, lice! Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Granny comes in and also disrobes, winking at both of them. Survivalist face falls. He's all, uh, actually, uh, I'm feeling a bit better. Uh, probably don't need both of you here. Uh, maybe just stick to me maggoty poultices. By the way, my shotgun shells were missing early. I think, actually, we should have a sit-down about that and the whole shaving schedule. When he wakes up, SpaceX is making annoying noises with a doorbell while Granny slurps some bath water. It's like Three's Company. That night, SpaceX all, I don't know, he makes me laugh more than Gary ever did. Granny's all, you're getting sentimental in your young age. SpaceX all, he's the one who found me, just saying. Granny's all, (laughs) get this thing. (laughs) Survivalist is all, could you two keep it down? Me maggot's trying to sleep. By the way, I used to have a brother. SpaceX all, how'd he die? Survivalist is all, he was careless. Not like me. He pats the empty shotgun. A pistol's knocked off the mantle and shoots out a window. <laughs> the next day, SpaceX gets bored by the gunfire and opens a book to look at pictures of alien covenants while Granny climbs a tree to annoy some parkage. That's what the cover says. That's, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Healing covenants. Three people in the world just got that joke. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that night, to celebrate alien covenants, survivalist and his lady friends hide indoors while a bunch of armed masked raiders romp through the garden outside and try to break in. Granny's all, how many are there? Survivalist is all, uh, six. Spade checks all, hmm, we have two shells and one bullet. Granny's all, enough for us. Survivalist is all, yeah, but then we're still down six bullets to use against them. Where's your math? (laughs) The raiders trick them by losing interest in bail. They also take all the radish leaves, but thoughtfully leave behind the bear trap. (laughs) Doesn't work on them. Yeah, Spacek goes down the river to find that her underwear is clean. I guess she decides this was because she used a special type of coat hanger because she studies the coat hanger carefully that night by firelight to learn how it works. <laughs> Kelly watches the movie. <laughs> the next day at dinner, Granny's all, Hey, Spacek. It's me again. There's only food enough for two. I just know it. The way Goldie Hawn and Snatch knew that that cable car would only hold one person. <laughs> Three quarters of a Schumer. I think you know what I'm getting at. You can shave him tomorrow. Wink, wink. <laughs> I'd rather clean up vomit than blood, so I'll use mushrooms. 
Spacecheck gathers poison truffles, and everybody has mushroom stew that night for dinner. The next morning, Granny gets up and starts puking. She looks at Spacecheck and goes, uh, <clears throat> I think you misunderstood what I meant. <laughs> different, too. Granny's taking forever to die, so the survivalist walks her into the forest with a knife to speed things up. Granny lights a cigarette and goes, all right, when the cigarette's out, I want you to stab me to death. Man, we had some times, didn't we? I really think you guys have a shot together at unhappiness and death. Thanks for not coming, Insider, like I said. Wait, wait, I meant this other cigarette. Survivalist gets blood on his head and buries her dude body in a hole and covers it with dirt. I look over at the hazmat suit from Z for Zacharias slumped beside me and go, still interested. The next day, Survivalist catches a rabbit. <laughs> Uh, so realistic. The next day, Survivalist catches a rabbit in his bear trap that's been messing with him for the whole movie, like the one from The Witch. (laughs) Female trouble. That's what both movies are about. As he skins it, he tells Spacek, yeah, me brother and I used to raid people's campsites for extra pillowcases. One night, me brother tripped while we was being chased by some off-screeners, so I shot him. I have some lighter stories about the apocalypse, too, though. <laughs> I'm an apple fell on me head, and it made me pants fall down. <laughs> She's all, what? <laughs> Suddenly, the dicks raid their camp again. Survival. Survival. Paycheck trick them by being in a different shot and shed. He's all, "You go ahead. I'll distract them by doing this." He raises the harmonica. She's all. Uh, it might be even more distracting if you blow into it. He's all, you and your one-track mind, we can have sex later after I do this thing with the harmonica. Also, my brother's name was Augustus. He was named after the donkey that went to the Super Bowl in that Disney movie and decapitated Joe Namath. He blows on the harmonica. She's all, uh, kind of wish you'd wait a couple seconds before blowing there. Well, next to you. Wait, now I get it. You were referring to the harmonica before. What about this time? The lead raider hates harmonicas, so he has his guys attack survivalist. Spacek tricks another one by him not noticing he's walking into a bear trap. The rest lose interest while Spacek walks a few feet and finds herself by the fence of a giant armed camp with guard towers and crops of eggplants. <laughs> they let her in in exchange for putting her empty guns in a bag. A one-armed, two-headed woman stares at her shapeless garments and goes, What do you do? Spacek saw six months. Have you come up with a name for it yet? Spacek smiles. If it's a boy. Some words tell me whose harmonica it was. After the credits, the one-armed woman brings a baby into Spacek, who's lying on a cot and goes, well, it's a girl. She's all, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) The end. Wow. 
What a delightful little romp, Kelly Wand. See, it's a, it's uh, it's like blame it on Rio, but it's like set in a humid area. Well, it is Dingus's three by three this week, and then I'll be announcing next week's. So, Kelly Wand, that leaves you with nothing to do for this podcast, so you get to start out. By giving us an over and under and letting us know what you thought of the survivalist. Uh, no, it's good, I guess. I guess my over is The Rover. I think that's my favorite movie about Australian apocalypses. <laughs> and then my under is The Divide, because that's my least favorite movie about Australian apocalypses. Oh, that, that Xavier Gans thing with, uh, oh. yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. Wow. The lady always lives, though, I notice, in the Australian apocalypses. You have a good good shot. Like, you suffer the most, and then at the end, you make it out. So that's my lesson from it. All right. But, uh, but yeah, I, I like Survivalist. I think it's good. It's really good acting, and uh, I liked how it told the story. I liked there wasn't much dialogue. Uh, I thought it was shot well. Um, I liked its themes. I liked the I liked the character motivations. They were always really clear. Um there's a lot of acting and people just with their eyes a lot. I like that. Um, I thought it was great. Okay. Dingus, what's an over and under? And uh, what did you think of this? The divide is the Michael Bean one. Is he in that? Xavier Gans is a French director. It's got a guy named – he looks like an, an Ethan Hawke fella. It's like an Ethan Hawke as a bad guy character actor. I forget that guy's name. Yeah. England, something, not Michael England. Yeah, maybe it is Michael England. Right. Uh, who else was in the Divide, Kelly? Was Michael Bean in that? Uh, I feel like it's the guy, the girl from um, Prometheus, because they, they have the same kind of hair. Numi Rapace? It was Lauren German. No, it was something old, older, as a, like not Jennifer Jason Lee, but... but um... Courtney B. Vance was in it. Roseanne Arquette was in it. Right. Roseanne Arquette. Yeah, Roseanne Arquette, right. That's right. Michael, yeah, was, pretty, was, the, was Michael Bean not in it? Yeah, he oh. was in it. Okay, I thought he was the creepy guy in the basement that they all went to see. Yeah, they all went. Right. It, Michael Eklund is another guy. Eklund, not England. Yes, thank you, Kelly. Yeah. England's Fred Krueger. Right, that's right. Robert. It's Robert, though, but yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Because that's the most British of parts. Freddy Krueger? Watch parts. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know he was a cool if there was a British Fred Krueger. Because... Be like Jack the Ripper thing. Or, you know, right. yeah. instead of like a Vin Diesel, James Bond, which is what Triple X, is, sure. Yeah. Yeah, our Fred Krueger is kind of. So, yeah, that's what I thought of the movie. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, um, my uh, under would be a uh, book of Eli. Um, What's your over or under? Oh, that's my under. That's my right. under because. Um, uh, and then it's pretty far under, uh, because one of my big gripes about Book of Eli is how little it respects um, an understanding of how the main character would be watchful and listenful, careful. I don't know how you would say that. Um, and how, uh, you know, he's constantly listening to an iPod <laughs> instead of paying attention to everything that's going on around him, especially when you find out the reveal of the movie and how ridiculous and, uh, frankly, inane that is uh whereas this movie has a clear understanding of that as and also an incredible sound design um uh, i like i like this movie quite a bit it took me two viewings to really get it 
the first viewing, I was a little too frustrated to like it, but I know I knew, you know, Tom had kind of uh, described this as a flawed gem, uh, and I and I saw it as a little too flawed at the beginning. Um, really? There are still things that, yeah, uh, there are still things that I think uh, in inhibit me from absolutely loving it, but I like it quite a bit. Um, and over, I would put Z for Zachariah because I did not like Z for Zachariah as much as you guys did, but I still appreciate a lot about it um and i like that there are naked people bathing in pools of water in both movies uh my dingus you stole my over because my i love z for zachariah and i really really like this uh my my category is love triangles and post apocalypses and amongst people who don't trust each other and uh uh, basically three-way relationships without civilization post-civilization three-way relationships that's an interesting way to put it as a love triangle that's very interesting tom uh, well, wait to get to my under. Uh, yeah, so Z for Zechariah, uh, I, I adore that movie. I love its nonverbal storytelling. I love how it establishes the setting. And similarly, I really like how Stephen Fingleton does some of that in The Survivalist, the nonverbalness of it. I, I love that graph bit at the opening. Like, I love how much is said there with just a couple of lines that are labeled and the direction that they go. Uh, and it's it's you know way back in road warrior we had a little black and white screen explained to us about the apocalypse happened and the narrator talked about it but just the economy with which this movie yeah. sets up the world is great with that one little mm-hmm. uh, graph bit and, and it's just his face and his desperation and this nonverbal world building i really like because how how are you going to tell a story about isolation and loneliness without just having footage of a dude with no one to talk to, right? And this is an example of how you do that. Uh, my under for sort of love triangles in a post-apocalypse, uh, I, I don't think this movie holds up, but it certainly fascinated and sort of I, I was confused by it as a kid. I recently rewatched it because I was writing up a Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, uh, Barry Lyndon, where at cer- a certain point the characters start wearing uh, facial makeup. Uh, and it reminded me of this movie. So I went back and watched parts of this movie, and it doesn't hold up very well. But my under is a movie called A Boy and His Dog. Uh, uh, Don in, Johnson. In, yeah, exactly. Don Johnson and a telepathic, super intelligent uh, mutant dog. It just actually looks like a regular yeah. dog. Jason Robards and Clown. Uh, yeah, and they, it's, uh, they are uh, going through a post-apocalypse that's pretty much – uh, devoid of women. So women are, are an important commodity, and the dog helps him track down women. Uh, and he eventually finds a woman who he who he likes, and they have a relationship, and then the dog is kind of doesn't like the woman. And the way that these three-way relationships play out in these three movies, A Boy and His Dog, The Survivalist, and Z for Zachariah, uh, I really like. I think that they are uh, they're great payoffs. Now, Z for Zachariah, I like throughout. Uh, one of my favorite things about The Survivalist is the payoff is that you find out. And I kind of don't like the credits doing this. I don't think The Survivalist is who we think it is. Like the, I love the fact right. that the title at right. the end of the movie is basically saying, hey, she's The Survivalist. Uh, Clearly, yeah, I think I you're right. I love that twist, and I, I, uh, I think that's a great payoff. Um, and the payoff in A Boy and His Dog is that, uh, well, you know what? You'll have to see it uh, and see what <laughs> it's good. What they it's a good yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. Uh so, uh, yeah, so I really like this, uh, and I, I mentioned it was a flawed gem just because I mentioned it in the context of a couple of other movies that we could have seen. I think this was the the better amongst them. 
Uh, I have some issues with it, but for the most part, I really like what Stephen Finkelton has done. I can't wait till he does another movie. Uh, I really like the lead actor, although I want to tell you guys about something I've seen him in before. Uh, I like all the actors in this, actually. Uh, and I'm so glad to hear Kelly Wand calling out like little subtle acting cues. Kelly Wand, I'm very proud of you. Yeah, that's what I really and and they're also they looked really skinny and emaciated, and that always takes me. That's no. what kind of took me out of Z for Zachariah. Like they're all too beautiful. Like, I disagree with you. Just fine. They're not emaciated enough in this. No, she's certainly. I mean, uh, uh, the girl, um, what's her name, um, Mia, Milf. Yeah. Um, she's not emaciated at all, and neither is the none. None of them are. The old woman is, and I think no, she's not. She has a what? No, she's not. Uh, I'm, I'm, she, I'm, has I'm a, she has a decent body, and one of the things I love about this movie is it's how e, uh, how equal it is, and even-handed and uh, practical it is with its nudity. Um, and I think the old woman has a has a fine body, but I don't think she's emaciated in any sense. Uh, I, I, I think I, I would. I think it's just a semantic issue. They're not emaciated, Kelly Wan, but I definitely agree that this isn't a movie like The Road, where you've got this incredibly healthy Cody Smith McPhee playing yeah. what's supposed to be a, a very hungry child. Uh, they looked hungry. They looked lean. Uh, they definitely didn't seem well fed. I mean, Mia Goth is, is curvy in all the right places. She's a beautiful young lady, but they made her look sallow enough in the face. Uh, yeah. I think Compared they to Jennifer Lawrence. I think they did a good job of making these people look like folks fending for themselves in an apocalypse. Now, Dingus is right. In this situation, they would normally look more like the people, the Holocaust victims in that book. You know, if they're really subsisting on potato soup, yeah, to be fair. Uh, but I, I think that they all looked hard enough. I loved Olwen Fjordera's face. Like, that woman's face is amazing. Mm-hmm. She's just got this beautiful, harsh Uh, Actually, all of them with their mistrust, uh, the way they would sort of look at each other and the lines of their face, even Mia Goth looking just very kind of slack and uninterested. You find out that that's kind of a cultivated approach that she has. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like they look like people who've had to fend for themselves and survive for seven years, Um, even though I'm with you, Dingus, is they – you know, they also, for the most part, they're healthy actors who – By the standards of the genre though. Exactly. Exactly. Like they're never thin. Like, uh, what's his name? Who was the dad in the road? Uh, Morrison, right? Yep. He yeah. actually like he lost weight for that role, and you could tell, and that was unusual. Like usually, you have to pretend that everyone looks worse. Than they do, well, right? for something like this, though, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm being a little unfair. For, for something like this, an actor might get two weeks notice. <laughs> I right. mean, this is, I, I don't know the, the actual um, story of how this film got to be made. Uh, it's, a, it's a British production and maybe it was being workshopped for quite a while. Who knows? But, you know, uh, Mikoff might have gotten a call a month out. Who knows? Um, once the funding came through and everything got greenlit, I, I don't know. Uh, I know that, um, uh, that uh, Stephen Fingleton was super uh, I was the word chuffed just came to my mind. I, I'm not trying to be a, a pretender by saying the word chuffed. I just like the word. Uh, he was super excited to be able to get um, Martin McCann. And one of the things he says is, I oh. can't believe Hollywood hasn't snapped him up. Well, you know, I, I kind of – how does he – what was his frame of reference for who Martin McCann is? Because I know him from one thing that I, I want to tell you guys about. But why did he say that about st- – Well, I only McCann? knew him from 71, and I can't even remember what he was – who that particular character he yeah, was. I think he was just one of the soldiers, maybe. One of the dudes. All right. Uh, I don't be, know, yeah, but he yeah. just 
he just talks about him in glowing terms and he's and he says i i don't know why hollywood hasn't snapped him up i'm just i'm lucky that they didn't like make him the lead in the avengers movies because he's really great he internalizes all of these emotions and he brings it every single time that he's on the screen and he's just brilliant um so i don't i don't know the what all of this is to say i don't know what the casting um casting procedures were for this particular movie but these actors might have just had a month or two to get ready for it or a week or two to get ready for it i don't know so it's a little unfair for me to talk about it in those terms but when you're just watching the movie just watching the movie from my point of view i just disagree with kelly Wan that they look emaciated uh yeah the other thing too in these movies they, they always age the girls up a little bit than what i than what i think the story is supposed to be about like she should mean? be like thirteen. Like the girl in Z for Zachariah, the novel's like twelve. She's like a little kid, and then oh. it's Margot Robbie in the movie. And so I always just assume I might be wrong. Like this, maybe I'm just this is just what I was bringing to it. But in in the survivalist, I just kind of pictured the way that the grandma talked about it, like she was supposed to be like fourteen or something or fifteen. Uh, were they so? First of all, two questions. Did uh, did she say her name? Like I know um, Mia Goth's character's name, Mia. Did Olwen Fiorina uh, – didn't she at the very beginning introduce her name to Martin McCann? No. That she's Catherine? Is that her name, Catherine? I think so. Okay, so she does give her name. Um, at least I, I don't know her. that she gives it. I just – I saw it when I was looking at her at, – okay. at the actress's name and trying to figure out how to pronounce it. That's all. Uh, and yeah, and also I, in the in the credits, I don't like that he's listed as the, as the survivalist. I mean, I understand why they're doing that. They don't want to say his name, uh, but I, I wish that nobody had been listed as the survivalist, so we then could. Well, so it's this direction. I guess so. I guess fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Or uh, maybe maybe Stephen Fingleton doesn't agree with you. I mean, if he if he calls this, him the survivalist in the script, that's I mean. That's who he's calling him, and then we realize. Doesn't agree with me about that. The movie ends up being about Mia Goth. No, that he doesn't. That that he that his main character isn't called the survivalist. Well, or just You're, that's his name in the script because the script has to call him something. Right, right. To begin and he also, I mean, he's not ultimately. Well, the script not, could call him Jack and still call itself the survivalist. True, but even I know. got the thing that she was the survivor. Like I'm yeah. dumb, and I even got that. Well, everybody gets it, but he might not agree. He might just think that my main character is the survivalist, and then she turns out to ultimately take on that role to be the survivalist, like the Dread Pirate Roberts or whatever. I mean, she she ultimately is the is the survivor of this. I understand that, but he just might not agree that she is. Well, we don't know, but I don't know if it's evidence that that's just his name in the script. Like you would just do that for shorthand, just to for a variety of reasons. All right. Uh, do we know? Are they are they supposed to be related? Like, are they just two women who fell in with each other? Is that specified ever? It's unspoken. Okay. Yeah. Um. Uh, so I want to tell you guys where I know Martin McCann from. Uh, I want to tell you the name of this movie, and you guys guess what kind of movie it is and what it's about. Okay. I know him from a movie called The Resort. So guess what it's what kind of movie it is. Uh, tits. Mm, like a sex comedy? Nope. Wrong. Yeah. Kelly Wand. Disaster movie? Like High Rise? It Wait. sounds like a hostile kind of movie. Dingus is a little closer. Uh, here's the twist. It's resort, but it's spelled with a, a Z instead of an S. Resort. Now guess what oh. kind of movie it is. 
So it's a zombie on an island movie. Very good, Dingus. It's zombie Jurassic Park, no lie. So we had the we had the, the zombie apocalypse many years ago. We won, USA, USA. Fine, we, we won. We beat the zombies back, and we've con- taken control of the world again. But what if we have an island, a resort island, where zombies are kept and guests can show up and shoot them? Like for recreation and to, to get their their anger out about the zombie apocalypse that killed all these people. And what if on this island something goes terribly wrong because of industrial espionage and a party of people who are out <laughs> shooting zombies get stranded out in the middle of the island when all the security protocols are shut down? What if? And this is the the uh, the movie that answers this is called The Resort, and Martin McCann, unfortunately, the the dashing lead, the Sam McNeil and Jeff Goldblum of this thing, is uh, Dugray Scott, so they had him. But Martin yeah. McCann is the, the weaselly boyfriend who ends up being a coward, and you would have no inkling from The Resort that he can do what he does in The Survivalist. Uh, so it's a little disappointing. Actually, that whole movie is stupid. It's disappointing anyway. But uh, <laughs> it's disappointing to, to see him doing that kind You're of thing. You're making it sound good. Um, how can I avoid it? So here's the problem with the resort. It, it could be cool. And uh, the problem with the resort and Jurassic Park really is just um, Westworld with dinosaurs. Like it's Michael right. Crichton's right. shtick. If he'd still been alive, he probably would have eventually written a Jurassic Park with zombies. But these yahoos did it for him who made this movie. Uh, the problem with this movie is it's super concerned with the heroine who is haunted by the loss of her father in the zombie apocalypse. So she has to go to this island to work out her feelings and uh, to sort of recover and and her ambivalence too about whether or not to kill zombies, whether or not they're really alive. And And then her dad's one of them. She runs into him, of course. No, but basically – He's the concierge. It's it's one of those movies where exactly – one of the, I think (laughs) – one of the important parts of, of zombie mythology is that anybody can die. And this movie only kills exactly who you think is going to die. There's no shock when people die. I mean, it's a, it's a poorly written movie. Uh, and so, of course, it's, all, it, it's, so, it's too uh, preoccupied with its dumb heroine. Uh, so Zombies resort- would make good maids, though. But only with regard to, like, picking up after room service, like plates <laughs> and things, like dishwashing. But not How so much making the this? bed. Stuff. Well, they just have to chew on the plate and eat the plate. Oh, like just like a goat. Yeah, like I see. Right, they're like. I don't, I don't think you know what zombies eat, Kelly Wan. That's not their diet. Plates. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not. They're not. They're not shuffling around and saying porcelain. Right. Yeah. China. They could Kelly Wan, I think your your proposal to use zombies for domestic servants is as ill-fated as using zombies for a resort That's- island. No, we got this figured out. I'm telling you. <laughs> Can they read "Do Not Disturb" signs? You make the cleanser out of you put you make it smell like brain, so then they like lick the porcelain. <sighs> no. You made it weirder than you already had. Um, what, right, we can use it in a car wash. I what? just want to leave you with this motto: just a cautionary line. Unlife finds a way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, George Orwell. <laughs> Double plus on life. Finds- um, I want to ask you a question, Tom. Sure. Uh, so when you when you talk about that graph that you love at the beginning, uh, the dates begin to blur out, and you so we don't really even know what the time is that this is taking place. We we know one thing about the time, and that's that he's been out there seven years. Like that's all that that's the that's only a- like. 
you know, thing that they tell That's us. That's all we know. But why do you think that they make the choice of not letting us see those dates past a certain point? I mean, it's very clear. It's very unclear, uh, but very much on purpose that they just start to blur out the, the dates after a certain point. Why oh, do you rather think than like a title card that says, you know, 20 or, or just keeping those dates in focus because it starts out with dates in focus as the graphs as the graph goes on and then as the graph keeps going the date goes out of focus and we can't the dates don't matter by that point so it's it's fuzzy even to those living through it they're like whatever the year is oh yeah i like kelly wan's answer that's what i'm gonna pick like it becomes like dates sort of fall away with civilization i'm going with kelly wan's answer is that is that what you were wondering like is that no i i i think that that's a good explanation but i don't think that tracks with uh, the graph i i think it's just a way of rather than making the mistake that um blade runner makes for instance of setting a date and then we get to that date and everybody's looking around going where are the flying cars um it's just uh, blurring them out because as the as the graph continues to rise i mean we haven't reached peak oil yet supposedly uh so it obviously hasn't happened yet i think the the movie is just trying to is just doing that for convenience sake, and that's fine with me. I was just wondering if you guys had other theories. I, I don't know if well, Kelly's necessarily. I, I do always when a movie fixes itself in uh, actual time or in the real world or with dates. I, I definitely notice that, especially if it seems like reluctant to do that. And there's definitely a point in this movie where they mention a, a city, a town, when he asks where they came from, and they say, mm-hmm. I actually had to turn on the subtitles because I couldn't, I didn't know if I heard what she was saying, but she says the name of a town called Monaghan, which I meant to look up. I assume that's in Ireland where they shot this. Uh, so this is geographically fixed at a certain point, uh, even though, Dingus, you're, you're right, like there's no g- date given. We don't know, was he born in the post-apocalypse? or uh, mm. Like we don't know if these were people who were around before civilization collapsed or not. Um, does the rover give a date? It just says ten years after the collapse. Oh right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and it's interesting that you said that about the um, that you actually heard the town because I heard that too, but I didn't write it down. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we had one listener write in this week. His name is Keith Leith, uh, and he says that uh, the cast for him the cast didn't put a foot wrong. I've lived in Norn Iron. It's the way he spells is it, I don't know how you would say it, but spelled N O R N I O I R O N, Norn Iron, Norn Iron, I guess, for a bit, and they all look the part. So I'm guessing that Keith Leith also recognized the place you're talking about, Tom. Right. Oh, so they're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I have questions. Well, that's the Australia of England. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> What is Australia then? That's the Scotland of of Asia. <laughs> Scotland of Asia. Wow, That's awesome. Uh, what yeah, was the yes? What was the deal with the the maggots on his wound? Because you see him lying amongst the heaps where the bodies have been buried, and he reaches for dirt, and then I thought he had put maggots on his wound. For he did. Some, oh, why? What does that do? Well, what I think, you know, one of the things I do like, what I, one of the things I found both frustrating and ultimately gratifying about this movie is that there are things that it just doesn't tell you. Like he, he said, you know, when she asks if there's a toilet, he says it's out near the, it's out near the mounds. I think use heaps. your nose. Heaps. Out, out near the heaps. Use yeah. your nose. Where the bodies are. Um, 
And, uh, you know, at first you're wondering, is this going to be something that's like the road that, you know, it's cannibalization, you know, it's cannibalism kind of a thing. He's dragging this body out to save it for later for meat. But apparently he just can't be bothered to dig a deep enough grave or he's going to use them for fertilizer or that kind of thing. Wait, wait, you, you, (laughs) you thought maybe he was a cannibal? Well, you're at the very beginning of the movie, and he's dragging a naked body out there, and he's that's not how you store meat, Dingus. <laughs> well, you can't store meat in this world, regardless. Um, he might be seasoning it, and you can make a fire pit uh, out of uh, out of putting a body in the ground and then burying and putting. You could laugh all you want, but there are different ways to do that, and there are well, ways to I, store I mean, meat I, that, that you would have I've to do in a post-apocalypse. There are plenty of things he doesn't know how to do. There's definitely a cannibalism reference later, I think. I mean, I think this, the implication when you yeah. see a spit over a fire is that the raiders are cannibals, uh, which right. is kind of why I'm laughing. Is I, 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 I never thought he was a cannibal. Like, I thought, you know, that that's one of the things I wonder watching is, well, have people been eating people? And when they show up and that's not really discussed amongst them, I was like, okay, well, this isn't going to be a, an apocalypse where cannibalism is an issue, even though everybody's hungry. So that when it is very obliquely referenced with the raiders, right. I was like, oh, okay. So it's one of those things where, like, in the road, only the really worst of the worst resort to cannibalism. Uh, which I have to say, okay, is this? Sorry, I didn't start to interrupt you, but it, it gets it kind of why I was, I was laughing too. I don't. What's the big like? If it's a post-apocalypse, and I was like stranded with you guys, and one of you guys died, in order to survive, I might eat your flesh. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Like, what, why is cannibalism such a big deal? I, I know, know they're always the bad guys. It's true. Even I know in the it's road. reprehensible in civilization, but in order to survive, like I, I don't understand why it's such a big deal if they're at those lengths. Like, thing it's heroic right. in that in that movie, Alive, where they're where they're rugby players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, because that's that's a real life story, and they they have. Right. To- subsist on on the corpses of the people who died they weren't qualified so that's why when dingus like when you see him dragging the the body you're like okay he's just getting rid of bodies but then later you see you know he's having to like live on these little mushrooms and stuff i was kind of wondering oh well you know cannibalism is just so awful they haven't even gotten to that and then i find myself thinking well you know i don't if i had to live i i might eat people if it came down to that uh Maybe because he can farm. Right, right, he right. Feels he doesn't need to. Well, as the raiders are like, Meh. Right. They're too – exactly. They're, they don't have the know-how or yeah. discipline or whatever it takes to, to farm. Yeah. So, so I'm are sorry, the, are I'm the sorry. raiders just, just cruising through town, or are they the people from that camp that she eventually finds? Here's another – Or are they random whoever's? Yeah, so a couple of things. So uh, it's she travels for three months. Like that's the implication. When, what? When, when the woman says, when do you do? And she says six months, I think. We're, we're supposed to infer from that, you know, she got She's pregnant. She's already been pregnant for a while. She she goes through that sort of false abortion moment, right? Right. And then, she, and then they're still together, and she puts her his hand on her stomach. I mean, she's... She was there for three months, so, I mean, I thought that was... No, to me, it seemed like that was a matter of days. But the the trip if if that if that's the case and this movie does have a problem with that slightly other than the crop growing sequences uh, of giving us an idea of the progression of time I didn't think she was traveling for three months. Well, we see, uh, you know, she's she has no trouble finding that place and and I don't know. It's, is that where she I mean, and the, and the old woman were heading to originally? I, I don't get the sense that she knew it was there, that it was just fortuitous. It's like the end of the road. Is he gets super yeah. lucky and finds someone who's going to raise right. his child. I, I, I got the sense that it was like that, that she just fortuitously stumbled across 
uh, th this community after wandering for maybe not I three imagine. months, but there for wandering for a very long time. I didn't, you, you aren't, the way that the story, the way that it's cut, you, you could almost think, oh, it's like Kelly said in the synopsis, she just walks across the road from where they'd been staying. Uh, yeah. like you sh they show her basically walking. She drinks water. She walks some more. Then they show her walking there out into is. that clearing. Right. But it's, I, I do it's think like one overnight. She has but I one do overnight. think that's the purpose of that line is how when are you due? I mean, we're oh, supposed right. to see that at the moment she's standing in front of the gate. That is three months from the time that she checked and saw that she wasn't uh, getting her period. Um, well, it is a little goofy that the raiders only come every now and then when they know this farm is there. And well, that's what—that's my and big he issue. Stays. Once, yeah. What, first of all, the raiders just trample the garden and then leave, <laughs> or did no, they, they took, harvest they took the plants? They, yeah. they sat there that night and they harvested the garden. I mean, I guess that makes sense. But I'm—I'm I'm picturing then too why stay? the raiders like setting up lamps and pulling up all the radishes and putting them in a bag. Uh, and exactly, why do you stay if, if things are really as dire as the movie has portrayed? Right. They are found. It is time for them to leave the very next morning. Uh, right. What does he think is going to happen when they stay? And that makes no right. sense to me. Like the thing right. about – I want to get back to what the deal is with the maggots if you guys know. But I had other questions that I think I just didn't understand. But I don't think the movie – I think that the movie just ignores that really bad decision uh, and maybe hopes we wouldn't notice or – yeah, I, I think that that's a bit of a plot hole there. Yeah, because it's something that could be addressed. Like, she'd go, we have to leave, and then he could say anything. Like, no, my brother's buried here. I can't or something. Right, right, exactly. Or we'll be ready for them, or I don't know what. Yeah, but, or they uh, come every few months. We have weeks to go, and then he's just wrong. Exactly, exactly, Kelly Wand. Right, like they're, or they're, they're traveling. They've moved yeah. on. It's happened before. Just something like that, because I guess we're supposed to make that up on our, on our own, but – that just seemed a little silly to me that, yeah, they came back. Of course they did. What did right. you think was going to happen? Uh, and he set up as a competent person. Right, who, right. Exactly. Super competent. He's super competent. He, now knows he's an he knows there's six dudes out there. How many people are out there? Six. Really? Right. <laughs> I, I know there's six. Well, he's been running for I mean, he was – well, I, I don't know. Maybe he saw yeah, flashlights. You can't count but, six dudes when you're running. <laughs> That's, it's, a cool, it's a cool idea because of the three shell, you know, you know, two shells and a bullet. Enough for us, which uh, uh, Milia says, not the grandmother. Kelly Wand. Um, <laughs> but I like that Kelly thinks that the, that, uh, that Mia Goth stabbed the guys listed in the credits. This is funny as I think Snatcher. <laughs> Snatcher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, Kelly Kelly Wand thinks that Mia stabbed him through the throat. <laughs> yeah, how did how did she get over there exactly? <laughs> so he's pretending to be dead, and then she comes up and stabs that dude in the neck somehow from behind. Look, I'm writing an opsis while he's here. <laughs> I always have time to pay attention to the first thing. So, so go, to go back to your to your magic. Yeah. So thing, okay. Tom, so he's lying there uh, with the heaps. Uh, what's the yeah? So go ahead. What what? So so I I see it as um I, and I know I've read about this. It's basically. Along the same lines of how how they used to use and still and now have started to use again in some therapies um, leeches uh, for certain blood problems. Uh, maggots can be used 
to clean bacteria out of wounds. It, it's it's mm-hmm. squicky. It eats, it's weird. It's gross. It eats the rotten part of the wound, I guess. It, is the idea. it eats dead flesh. Maggots okay. eat dead flesh. And so the, the idea being, if you put a maggot on uh, a wound, as long as you have somebody who can supervise and treat it, it, it will supposedly uh, eat out the dead flesh and eat out the infection. All right. Well, I, I will be a cannibal before I will be doing that. I'm not putting any <laughs> maggots on any of my wounds. That's just yeah. gross. freaky. Well, then they lay eggs in you. And oh, God, exactly. Oh, oh. No, no, they don't. Yes, they do, dingus. No, and no flies lay free. eggs. Do you guys – A maggot's a type of fly. It's the, the maggot- alien the, – the CG comes in your ear when you step on the mushroom, and right. then <laughs> a face hugger comes out of your spine. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, here's another question. What was the deal with this? There's a couple of moments with seeds where when – Yeah, that was red herring. Yeah, so the two women show up and they're like, we have these great seeds, and they throw the packets. Like, Was there some kind of trickery going on there that he saw through? I wasn't real clear what that was. No, he just doesn't need them. I mean he's got his own cache of seeds. I mean seeds are really important, and they're hard to get. Uh, e- even if you have plants, you have to dry them. You, and there are certain seeds you can't just like pop up in a fruit and then throw that the seed right. that comes out of it and right to the ground. He makes a point to go back to the the cabin to get the right. seeds. Right, like they they make that right. very clear, and that kind of ties into with the the themes of fertility and stuff. Like I got all of that, but I just didn't understand. Was there some trick that she was? I my what a lot of what I find fascinating with this movie is who trusts whom how or who mistrusts whom how much when yeah so uh-huh. you're looking for when are the women going to tip the fact that they're hostile and does she initially try a trick with the seed packets I wasn't sure if she did or if I misread that because he picks it up and we get an inset we get a POV shot of him seeing a tag that says pumpkin seeds or whatever and then he throws it back to her so thing is you think it's just he didn't need them like he didn't care yeah, just uh, – she's she tries three levels. I mean she first shows a bunch of jewelry, and, and he's like, what do I need with a bunch of necklaces? I mean th- th- these are the levels of things she's going to do before she offers up who I thought was her daughter, but I didn't even think about the fact that maybe they're not even related. They just somehow glommed together because I just assumed that they were related. Um, she, wasn't she, a- she tries she was- the level of here's some jewelry we've – taken would you like this right. and he he doesn't react to that um and then well, how about these seeds they'll boost your yield and she throws them to him and he looks at that and says i don't need these because he knows what he has and then she's like all right well how about this because i just didn't understand why there was a pov shot of him seeing pumpkin seeds and then throwing it back uh i didn't know well, if i missed something i think because he's actually evaluating it to see is this something right. i actually need Pumpkins take a long time to grow, and what are you going to do? Yeah, but it's worth it. It's worth it. What are you talking about, man? If someone threw pumpkin seeds at me, I would consider taking that over sleeping with Mia Goth. Pumpkins are good. It's tough. It's tough. (laughs) It's a tough decision. You know, if you can Uh, make pumpkin pie? Maybe if it were melons. (laughs) It's a choice between pies. Kelly Wand! Oh, no. Um, Terrible. What do you guys think of the hand on the shoulder? I love. I, like the, I love the bit. I love the bit. The the appearance of Augustus, where you think, oh, it's a radar. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, I I love those little uh, unreliable narrator bits mm-hmm. that we see where we're in uh, his head. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, Isolation. He's alone for a little while, and I liked that because usually I think they introduce uh, people in these movies too soon. Like I'm I'm curious about the effects of loneliness, and movies tend to 
skitter away from it. Like, Nothing's happening. Got to ratchet it up. Cut out all these shit potato scenes. That's a really good. That's a really good observation, Kelly. I'm curious about the effects of loneliness because I was wondering at the end because I'm you know my mind's kind of like when's the twist coming? Is Augustus in that raiding party? Oh, good lord, no! Or, or is oh, Augustus no, no, even no, no, a real no, no, no. person? Kelly, or, in the words no. of Kim Cattrall, absolutely not. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Marcelino Marlene. It, because what he does, and it's hard to tell because I don't think it's very well. It's just so quickly, weirdly filmed. Um, I guess he just hobbles him and runs off. Yeah, he killed his own brother. Yeah, he doesn't kill him; he hobbles him. Well, to, so that he would be caught and killed by the the, the people chasing him. Yeah. Exactly, but th- there's the possibility that they could have just taken him, you know, fixed him up and brought him out on raids and made him. Yeah, one of the I, I never thought this was that kind of movie, though. Like, I never okay. thought there was going to be that kind of twist. Like at the moment. I realize when he, he says it, it's Augustus, and you do. Here's another thing I wondered: What's the deal with his hair? So we saw in the rover. I love how Guy <laughs> Pierce obviously cuts his own hair. Nobody's really that vain in that movie. What is going yeah. on with his hair? Because I have I have a theory. Did you guys? I that? think he's just crappy at. Sh- I mean, he's shaving with a rearview mirror for one thing. Uh, I just don't think he's very good at it. And I also think that, to be quite honest, I think for practical purposes. I think Stephen Fingleton understands that Martin McCann looks a little bit like Daniel Day-Lewis, and when he's running through the forest with a shotgun, he looks like Last of the Mohicans. And so he's he got a bit of an hair. Orlando Bloom Legolas thing going as well, Dingus. Yeah. Yeah, so I think he cuts his hair to kind of make us think about that a little bit, just for fun. Um, but I think that from the standpoint of the movie, he's just crappy at cutting his hair. Well, why not just take it all off? No, I don't know. What What is your theory? So my theory right. is because his brother does it. Is yeah. it something that his brother oh. did? And maybe it's like a younger brother. It's something that he did because his brother was doing it. Because clearly it took work. Like he's sitting there pulling his hair back in the little bands. Uh, it's something that – it's the closest thing to preening that you see him do. I mean he could just cut it all off. But then later in the flashback scenes, you see his brother has his hair like that as well. So yeah. I, I kind of wondered, is it just something – is it force a habit from his brother? Is he maybe honoring his brother? And I like that that we don't see that, but we that it is weird. It does stand out. It's a very distinctive hairstyle that you don't see in a lot of post-apocalyptic movies. So it stands out. And then later in the movie, when you find out and you see his brother and you see that same hairstyle, it distinguishes them from every other character you've seen. And it creates this kind of bond between them. You know, it's hmm. two men who do their hair the same way. Uh, so, yeah, because the, the, the practicality of it is wondering why bother with that. Just shave it all off, you know, get it out of there. Um so well, and there's it's made like about his shaving, like he doesn't mind being shaven, but she doesn't cut the hair. Right, right. And I love I mean I know Dingus does too. Like that's I love a good shaving scene. Yeah, me too. But I think that I think hair also has a practical purpose for keeping you warm. Um so and also he has a limited amount of Blades and sharpening them is probably annoying. So well, I, don't, I think he's the just, sides of his head, though, like yeah, that. That yeah. and if you want to keep warm, like that, that would make your ears cold. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, that's a good point, actually. So I, yeah, um, it is Australia, though. Oh, Kelly, wine. nice and warm there. <laughs> um, I saw this with uh, with our friend Alexandra, uh, and she had a really interesting observation. I think about, um, and I'm, I hope I get this right. Uh, she said I totally missed something on another on a previous podcast. She couldn't remember what, but I totally missed something. Uh, but 
So he's talking about how, about how this relates a little bit to um, what she knows about technology as far as as tech innovation is concerned about how youth is prized above all else and uh, older people are pushed out uh, even though they have experience and understanding and practicality uh, younger people who don't have those things are still prized more than older people are and how what happens with Catherine, if that is her name, I'm not sure I really remember. I'm talking uh, let's about call her Olwen. Like Olwen's Olwen, such a great name. Yeah. Olwen Fuere. Um, how her last act is one of practicality. Don't use that shell. You know, she's not an evil character. She's practical. She's constantly about surviving and about helping her daughter, whether she's actually her daughter or not, survive. Helping the two of them survive how much food is available for this many mouths, but still she's the one who gets kicked to the curb, so to speak, and how this works. And I know this, what and the reason to bring this up is because this is often how Hollywood or the publishing business works that, you know, if you're older then your ideas are pretty much immediately discounted. Uh, but younger people are, we're always in the search of, of youth. Yeah, I disagree pretty strongly in that I, being an older fellow myself, I'm pretty sensitive to that when I see that. Uh, and I think here it was strictly a matter of uh, utility. Uh, Mia decides after the snatcher snatches her and it is uh, the, the dude that saves her. I think at that point, and certainly with the pregnancy, she decides, and she even says this to Owen, she says he's useful. So I think it's more a matter of utility, and the, Olwen has shown herself to be very competent, very intelligent. Presumably, they've come far enough that they have this shtick worked out. Uh, I don't think that it's fair to ding it for that. Uh, so why doesn't Milia then just talk her out of it instead of killing her off? They only have food for two. Well, I mean, why the, the movies established that they they only once the raiders take all the turnips that there's only food for two. And Olwen's assumption, and I love how gracefully she lets go of it, is that well we've been together. There's only food for two. Naturally, it's you and I are going to have to get rid of him so that we can eat. And when Mia says, well, but he's useful, and plus she knows that she's pregnant, uh, she decides to cut her out because she couldn't it's him that saves her from the snatcher and i think that's an important point in the movie uh when she realizes that she would be uh, uh, uh dead or carried away or whatever if it hadn't been for him hmm. so I, I don't i just don't think that there's a judgment made on her age so much as her utility and that might be related to age but i don't think it's fair to say to think of this as an example of uh, and this is something I think not distinctly, but it's something very American. You don't see this in Asian cultures. I don't think you see it in Europe as often. I don't think it's a, it's fair to ding this movie as an example of marginalizing the elderly. Okay. Uh, no, well, she's a practical like that's the smart play. So the grandma even gets it. And, and yeah, exactly. Or, the, I yeah. love I love the fact I love too that she's like I'm just going to smoke your cigarettes. Like right, he's, right. he's hoarding those cigarettes and she like uh, she's entitled to them and uh, right. right. And she's not just she's not randomly vomiting. She's not she, 
she's forcing herself to vomit. Yeah, she knows at that point she's been poisoned, and she's trying she to make it. herself. Yeah. And that's when Mia says, "Look, it's too late." You know. Right, uh, and you know it. She she says, "You know this," and that's, and that's also, why she says, "Well, let's go away for a few days while he dies." You know. Because it's going to take a few days for him to die. He's dead as soon as he eats it. But let's right. go away for a few days. Yeah, it's going to be a, a painful, drawn-out death, which yeah. is horrid. The fact too that, and this says a lot about Mia that she's willing to, that she has decided that it's going to happen to Olwen and not uh, the dude. Um, what I like about what, what I like about that little scene between when they when they're talking about the poisoning, is that it, there's this really great subtle moment where where um, uh, where Olwen says you have to do this for both of us, and uh, and Milia says for both of us. And what I got right. from that, and why yeah, I think that yeah. this really bolsters your point that she's the survivalist, is she's not talking about him. Right. Yep. When and she says both of us, that too is so. Uh, I, 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 I when I really like a movie, I'm certainly willing to cut it a break for its imagery. So I was really into the stuff about oh. the rabbit. Like when the she's giving herself the abortion and the idiom that for pregnancy the rabbit died, like the, the, the rabbit dancing around the trap, I was okay with that. Like I didn't have any problem with that and then eluding the trap. And then later when – I think it's after he has dispatched uh, uh, the older woman, uh, two rabbits get caught. And we later that these two rabbits are the survivalist in the older woman. Like the 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 deaths here, you're wondering, okay, is there going to be a second rabbit? Like, you the the idea that there are that this fertility, this pregnancy, is kind of like a trap that they're set in. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I I really like that imagery, and I, I love I love that nighttime shot intercut with her abortion of the rabbit dancing around the trap and then evading it and not getting caught. As if like that's her baby. Like she was going to get rid of the baby. She can't. She doesn't. The baby walks away from this this trap, this steel, steel. metal that would have killed it. Um, uh-huh. Boy, so I, I really, I, I really dislike that. It's one of the things. One of the two things that really I objected to was that whole rabbit test thing. I thought I thought that was just sophomoric. Because the, the it's and it, no no the 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 whole that that intercut between the. Uh, the abortion scene and the rabbit jumping around because it's just so such obvious imagery, and even, and even if you don't understand what the rabbit test is or was classically, uh, I boy I really couldn't stand that. I'm I'm glad it worked for you, but uh, yeah, it, it looks really great. I, I, I'm okay with you know it fit into the theme of survival when he ends up catching the, the rabbit. How precious meat is, uh, you know, people as meat. I thought it worked very well. Um, were you okay with the little dream sequences of him and his brother running? Yeah, yeah, I was fine with that. That imagery. I mean, my my things were my other thing was practical. I, I just I don't believe, and we we talked about this. I think in a couple of three by threes ago. Um, I don't believe he's going to spend all day crouched over in the garden working and not realize that two shotgun shells aren't in his front pocket. I I just don't believe that. Just as if I were working outside all day, I wouldn't know that my keys aren't in my pocket. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that a guy – I mean I just watched a movie that I'm going to talk about during the 3x3 three three where the guy takes out a, a gun that he's had in the car forever, and he immediately checks to see if shells are in there. I don't believe that the guy doesn't know that – just as when I leave the house, I know my keys are in my pocket every single time. He doesn't know the shotgun shells are in his pocket when he's crouched in the garden all day long to, to say nothing of the physical 
discomfort of that constantly being there and understanding how that feels physically, that he doesn't check until later that day, those little deep kinds of details drive me nuts. I mean, I like the idea that maybe these are the only two shells he's ever had. I, I kind of like the the weird way he holds the double barrel shotgun with his hand curled around the barrel, which is which is really weird. And and it maybe speaks to the fact that he might never have sh- have shot this shotgun before. I don't know. Uh, I, I there are a great many things I do like about it, but I hate little things like that. Those little things distract me. Did you guys pause and look at the intro to that Covenants of Death book? <laughs> no. So I paused the, I, I froze the frame there because uh, Fingleton holds very briefly on a page of text when she takes that book down, Covenants of Death. She's flipping through it. It's basically Holocaust victims. Uh, that cover page, and I imagine this is probably a book that his production team or whomever found at a garage sale or whatever. It is so perfect. Uh, if you pause it, the book's called Covenants of Death, and it's some older British book, presumably from the 50s or whatever. And the the little intro there basically says, uh, these are grisly pictures. This is going to be very disturbing. Maybe children shouldn't see it, but it's important <laughs> that you understand the fallout from getting into treaties with people and and because of that getting into war basically it is a global Whoa. it is it is a warning on a global stage of the relationships you get into uh which <laughs> I, I think is part of what this movie is, is about wow <laughs> that's great uh, and I kind of I, I mean was I guess just he, distracted by the word covenant because we just yeah, saw right. that movie I, I, I honestly that's all I thought about yeah. it that movie has so gone on in my head it didn't even occur to me till Kelly Wan said something so I uh, I you know I've had so much experience for getting bad movies dingus it's it's an acquired skill you got to <laughs> practice it yeah it helps um, yeah go ahead Kelly what helps well just the it's been a week since we saw it but it feels like a month. Like I'll never think about it again. Alien. I'm. I kind of miss Walter. It felt like I was watching it That's, for a month. I liked Walter. There's, I've come around. Like I. Yeah. I'm, maybe I'm, he'll be I'm in the like, sequel. You liked Kelly Wan's version of Walter, I think, better than you liked Walter. In the well, someone someone brought up on the forum that great bit. I don't know that we talked about it on the podcast where when Billy Crudup is. Uh, why are we talking about Alien Covenant? First of all, never. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm doing a 180. <laughs> all right. Let, let me just oh. say, let me say a couple other things that Keith Leeds said. Yes. Instead. All right, so uh, Keith Leith really liked how spare the dialogue was. He said it rang true. And I agree with Keith. Uh, It's it's so spare, in fact, that literally nobody says anything until 17 minutes into the movie. And and one of the things that Stephen Fingleton says in this interview I was talking about was how how proud he is of what they did with the sound design. Because basically he's saying, look – you know, James Cameron, for instance, has a ton of money to be able to do all of this stuff with 3D. Sound is our 3D. We can spend. We don't have to spend all that money. We, you know, uh, the amount of things that we can do with sound is basically unlimited. And and one of the things that was a pleasure to me was that I, I listened to. I watched this movie with um, captioning on, and it's really funny to. To, it's funny and enjoying to hear, you know, to see what's going on while you're hearing because the sound design in this movie is really great. Oh, so is it captioning like, where they will say rustling sound or okay. – Oh, uh, leaves are rustling. Oh, or, I hate that. I hate that because <laughs> I, I just wanted – I want to hear what the – I'm trying to get 
when I turn those on, it's to hear the accents, not because I'm deaf. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I originally turned it on to hear them talk. But there are little things like a boot drops, the other shoe drops. I mean, and then in parentheses, muffled thumping. Muffled thumping is basic, or muffled thudding rather. Muffled thudding is what um, what Olwyn hears when she's in the little room and they're out there doing their thing. Muffled thudding is this, thudding. Is this movie's caption for uh, they're having sex out there. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I agree with, I agree with Keith Leith at how spare the dialogue was. This is, this is the thing he says that I'm interested in hearing what you guys have to say about, uh, in this, I'm, I'm now saying exactly what Keith Leith says. The final line kicked hard. A male baby wouldn't be a keeper and the men roaming and scratching out independent existences are prisoners. Hmm. What do you think of that? Uh, is caked a bad thing? Is like what? He says kicked. kicked. Oh, kicked. I thought he said kicked. So for him, the final line kicked hard. It, it hit yeah. him hard. So what he's saying is that a male baby wouldn't be a keeper, and the men roaming and scratching out independent existences are the prisoners. So what he's saying is that, I guess, females are running this compound. And yeah, I, I, don't saw see it, that I saw they're... it from the entire opposite way. Well, there are definitely – I mean there's a woman in the watchtower who talks to her and says how much you do, and there's another watchtower with two men in it. I did not get that at all. I mean it's an interesting implication to think about the value of women versus men in this situation, and that's what A Boy and His Dog, which was originally a Harlan Ellison book, tries to address in its own clunky, weird way. Uh, but I don't think that that's necessarily there because it's a man okay. that takes her – not her purse that takes her seeds and then runs off to report yeah, and, and takes her machete and everything yeah yeah exactly uh i mean i what they're keith commodities saying, they're not ruling it yeah what keith is saying is interesting and i i but i think that that i'm not sure that i that the text of the movie supports that did you guys i think it's or? a i didn't see it either because uh, until that woman speaks from up on that um Lookout, watchtower, whatever you call it. I thought they were all men up there. I just assumed that, right. and then all of a sudden we have a woman going. You know, how right. far along are you? Um, the idea that Keith puts forward is a fascinating one, and the women are certainly more canny in this movie, and the men are, uh, or the man that who is our supposed protagonist is ruled by his need to be with a woman, whereas she is she has other motivations and she might like him very well but she has other reasons to survive uh so i i think his interpretation is interesting and i'm kind of i agree with you tom i don't know that the movie supports it but i find it an interesting interpretation well the the last line is simply that basically that she's going to honor uh, the survival the uh, previous survivalist uh by naming the baby augustus right right Right. Yeah. Like I, 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 I just thought that it, was the implication as well. Yeah, it's just kind of a statement that yes, she survived, but she's acknowledging her obligation that he helped, that it took other people, that you can't survive alone in this movie about relationships and about how someone is trying to be alone. Uh, the final line is basically our new survivalist, the actual survivalist, admitting you can't do it alone. You know, he helped me. He's the reason. Therefore, if it's a boy, I'm gonna honor his guilt about his brother and name the baby Augustus. Uh, so that it might be part- another reason that his name's survivalist 
in the script too. Because if his name's Jack, then that last line might be confusing. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wand, right? <laughs> Unless she well, goes, I'm going to name him a survivalist. It's, <laughs> if it's a girl, Kelly. Ugh. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's see what. Um... Oh, shoot. Survivalist. Yeah, survivalist. Uh, I meant to call it early on, it was the stay at home version of the road right see mm-hmm. that's good yeah that's all i got uh do you guys think and, and i'm asking this in earnest do you think that undressing scene is erotic which one the very the one, first the one, one the one with where, the, where the, 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 the transactional <laughs> one Oh, <laughs> the bear trap guy. <laughs> that was not the, the bear trap one was very erotic. <laughs> and also when he buried the grandma, I thought that was erotic too. So yes, I see what you're saying. It's a good point. In fact, I mean, uh, I need a couple minutes here to now that you're reminding me of those scenes. <laughs> Uh, I I would uh, not conventionally think this. Uh, I thought it was more like it, it was it, it was in what would it was an erotic scene cast against mistrust. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was as erotic as it could be in that they mistrusted each other, uh, or certainly he mistrusted her. Uh, so, in other words, no, but it's what eroticism would be like at that point in civilization. Okay. Yeah. Wait, Most did, erotic I mean, you're going to get. Well, it's trend. It's a transactional scene. I mean, it's 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 a tr- you know after they've agreed to do well, you're going to feed us first, and then he puts the he puts Alvin Alwyn in the back room, and then they start to disrobe, and it takes a long time because there's a lot of layers of clothes to come off, but it takes its time and. It seems clear that there is attraction from his point of view, and Kelly made a really good point about the way, like, especially eyes are used in this movie, especially Martin McCann, the way he uses his eyes in this movie, like he's seeing things for the first time sometimes when he looks at her, and he's been there for seven years, so that's understandable, but he's amazing in this movie, but in this particular scene, and from her point of view, I think, saying, okay, he's not so bad. I, I think more than eroticism, what's in that scene is a transferal of who has power. Like it's mm. about him because he's had them at gunpoint all along, and it's about him finally letting her take over, and it's about her taking over. Like when she examines his face, like she takes his head, she's looking at him like – you know, transactional is a good word for it, Dingus. But she's kind of, okay, I'm going to take it from here. You've you've paid me oh. for this. I'm going to now commence. Uh, I I – uh, you know, and when he freaks out when she's picking up the knife, he moves her, his hand to her breast. Like that scene is more about her taking over and her realizing that this is where her unique survival skills come into play. Hmm. Um, I thought it was erotic when he skinned the rabbit. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees when I'm caught between counting. One, two, three, feet apart, Are those fake rabbits? Do they do like special effects rabbits or. Did they actually kill rabbits for this movie, I guess? 
Yeah, they, no, they just borrowed. They borrowed the squirrels from Winter's Bone. Oh, that's so sad. Poor squirrels. What? Yeah. Tough room. Nuts to that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's do a three by three. Dingus, what do we have this week? Well, what would Martin McCann, his little shack, what would the address of that shack be? <laughs> Out there. 69 that, Australia if, Lane. <laughs> like if, if he wanted to get mail, if he wanted to order something, where would it be delivered to? 69 Australia Lane. All right, Please send the seeds to uh, – <laughs> didn't they find it by looking at his mailbox, like in the postman? <laughs> they just Google mapped his place and then walked up to it. Yeah. 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 Street view. Oh. Oh, the post oh, – shoot. All right. Never mind. We'll, we'll I thought about, about this one too. Oh yeah, okay. Well, yeah, Dingus, one? what what is this week's topic? I'll be going first because I'm announcing <clears> it. <throat> what, do, what do you got? All right, these are your f- three favorite addresses. I was talking about physical addresses, not dresses someone might might wear, or a headdress, as Kelly Wan might have talked about, or an email address. These Dingus, are three what about favorite addresses. What about an address delivered to an audience? Uh, this is not um, a like nine Berliner. This is not an address uh, delivered to an audience. These okay. are physical addresses that you might be able to see in a movie and go to. So far, I think I did it right. So I don't have any favorite addresses, but what I do have are movies that I really like where addresses are mentioned. So I've pulled those addresses from these movies, and I ranked them in order of how much I like the movie. And I love all of these movies. The third one kind of is cheating. And I, by the way, made sure that a specified address – I didn't just choose a uh, like Sunset Boulevard, for instance. That We don't know what that – maybe we do know the house number, but I didn't choose that. I wouldn't have chosen it unless I'd known that, that – unless I could figure out the house number. It had to be something where I knew a house number because I think, Dingus, you even mentioned an apartment number could be involved. So Right. I was hoping for, for a number on a street or a number on an apartment or both. All right. So let me throw this out and see if you guys recognize it because I've never seen – I don't actually know if this is address is mentioned in the movie that you guys would associate it with. It's not what I'm picking, but let me throw this address out. 17 Cherry Tree Lane. Hmm. Is that um, – George Washington. No, a guy um, named Banks Is that Nightmare on Elm Street? No, a guy named Banks lives there, and his nanny it's – it's a movie about his nanny. Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's Mary Poppins' address. Oh, uh, that's cool. Is that ever mentioned in any Mary Poppins movies? Because I've never seen them. <laughs> Kelly Wan is our Mary Poppins uh, expert. My, my frame of reference for Mary Poppins is Michael Rooker's wonderful line. So Kelly Wan, do you know in the movies, does she live at Cherry, 17 Cherry Tree Lane? I guess. Where are you getting that address from? Uh, the internets. Because here's the movie that the I books? wanted to – uh, well, yeah, so it definitely mentions in the books that, like, I, I just on, – on the Mary Poppins wiki or whatever, it says this is where she works. So you just, just looked up an internet an address on the internet? No. So what I was looking for is the number of a house in a different movie because I wanted to pick this house. Uh, instead, I found that this is where Mary Poppins lives. So we, we there's a director named Paul Andrew Williams. He did a, a really cool movie called London to Brighton that we really like on this podcast – Kelly Wood, if he's ever seen it. Uh, he then did a movie called The Cottage, which is a really cool horror movie. It's actually a movie that goes through a couple of genres. Uh, he then did a movie called Cherry Tree Lane, which is um, it's a home invasion movie, right? Like that's a whole genre. Uh, the strangers, you know, you're just at home in your house, desperate hours, and thugs break in, and what are you going to do? Home uh, alone. 
Home Alone, exactly, Kelly Wand. Uh, Die so Hard. Cherry Tree Lane is Paul Andrew Williams' really brutal, grim home invasion movie. And I wanted to find out what was the address of the house. Uh, instead, I found out that – because I, I don't think in the movie they ever say, yeah, we live on Cherry Tree Lane. I, I think the movie is somehow some reference to or subversion of uh, Mary Poppins. Hmm. Because uh, it's about two parents, and someone is looking for their child uh, and comes to this house and invades it and holds them prisoner waiting for their child to show up uh, to come home from, from – he said practice after school or something. Uh, and I think that it's Paul Andrew Williams calling the movie this, not because it matters where they live, but I think because it might be a reference to where – to something with Mary Poppins. And I don't know enough about Mary Poppins, but I'm picking that address to reference a movie called Cherry Tree Lane. Um, so, so what happens? Does a stranger come in to fix things? Uh, no, but uh, so home invasion is a tricky genre because yeah. it clearly plays on anxiety. You know, you're safe in your home. You should that that's where you're safe it's only when you're out in the streets that crime hits you so home invasion is a cheap anxiety based horror genre where what if somebody broke in your home and and you know the crime came into your house and a lot of home invasion is absolute trash i don't think the strangers is any good i hate the strangers i think the strangers is terrible uh there's a really uh, uh i think it's spanish it might be mexican a movie called abducted or kidnapped the word is securos or but it's done where it it's multiple cameras in different quadrants and the technique is really cool but the movie itself is utter trash mm. uh really good home invasion is stuff that plays with the genre and our expectations like your next the movie with sharni vinson or a movie uh called hush about uh, a deaf woman uh there's a really cool movie with rebecca de mornay called mother's day um, and uh, Cherry Tree Lane is all about what would it take for you to kill a child? And that's all I'm going to say. I think it's a really cool movie. Uh, it didn't do very well because it's not just a standard, oh, people are going to break into your house and look how terrible this is. It's a really grim story about what would it take for you to kill a child. And I'm presuming that that is the opposite of what Mary Poppins stands for and maybe hence the name Cherry Tree Lane. Unless she's angry. <laughs> Doesn't she have magic powers? Like she could presumably yeah. psychically make a child's head blow up or something, right? Right. And her suitor's uh, chimney sweep, Dick Van Dyke. But you know you know who the chimney? new Mary Poppins is in 2018, don't you? No. Lindsay Lohan? No. I'm actually kind of excited about this. Uh, right. There's a, a new Disney of Mary Poppins uh, with Emily Blunt. As the oh, Poppins. okay. She seems kind of young. You think All young right. people can't work as nannies? They're au pairs. She's maybe it's Mary Poppins as an au pair instead She's of a nanny. She's not too young to play that part. Kelly Wan Mary hot. Poppins She's like an old lady? <laughs> yeah. I don't want her uh, that hot. Uh, how old was Julie Andrews when she played Mary Poppins? 38. <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> That's the year the world changed. Uh, I recently made the mistake of watching a, a movie called Wolves at the Door which was also home invasion and much to my chagrin, cause I found this in really poor taste. It was a retelling of the Manson murders, uh, but as a slasher movie, uh, 
What's Manson like, Family Vacation? Is that like that? Uh, I think it's more. I, I, you know, I actually don't know. I know that movie title, but I don't recall. I don't know if I've seen that or not. Vacation right. is spelled with a Z, so it's about the Mansons zombies. are all zombies. Because yeah. Yeah. Hmm. that's that's by the. I mean, that's home invasion right there. What happened to Sharon Tate when Polanski was away? Like that. That's the kind of thing that that fuels nightmares. I mean, is Panic Room set in the Freaky Friday universe where like Jodie Foster <laughs> and her daughter body switch, but they're in the same room for the whole movie? So no, it's it's, it's mildly confusing. It's in the Snow White and the Huntsman universe. I have to say, I don't think that I would be, I wouldn't be that scared if Forrest Whitaker and Jared Leto broke in and hung out at my house. Yeah, it could be worse. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't seem like that terrible a thing to happen. I don't. Jodie Foster should chill out. It could be Andrew Dice Clay and Corey Feldman. Oh, oh. Kelly Wand, so. that's in poor taste, too. That's worse than that Wolves at the Door movie. That's way too much. Over the line, Kelly Wand. Speaking of erotic. Well, all right, so there was my attempt. The other ones are actually from movies, but I just thought that, that was uh, cool. Mary discovery. Poppins is a dress uh, in the books. Uh, that's your three? Number three? It is, Cherry Tree yes. Lane. And my favorite address is the fact that discovering while I was trying to find out what was the number of the house at Cherry Tree Lane, because the opening shot, by the way, of Cherry Tree Lane is just slowly pushing in on the front door of their house. So I was going to be okay, because we know it's on Cherry Tree Lane. Let's see what the number of the house is. Instead, I found out it was a Mary Poppins reference. So I am picking my favorite address from a movie is 17 Cherry Tree Lane. You're cherry picking it. Very good. I'll, I'll take that. Yes. Is Cherry some reference to Mary Poppins uh, in terms of her... Yes, Kelly Wand, yes. Right, what, what's that, huh? Isn't she a... Uh, yes, Kelly Wand, right, yes. Baron, can we help you? Spinster, thank you. Yeah. Isn't she a spinster? Yeah, because she's 38, according to you. Poppins. <laughs> her name's not Mary Van Dyke. Uh, she's not married to the chimney sweep. They live... In but his broom. All right, my number three favorite address is from the motion picture 21 Jump Street. All right, what's I the address? Know. And it's the, it's the uh, address 22 Jump Street. Which isn't next door, it's across the street. Across right? the street, right. Yeah, that's how geography works. Yeah, so See I like that works. Because I, I thought that was just a phrase. Because I didn't watch the show, but it's apparently a real – it's the address of the headquarters, which makes the headquarters very central to the plot, I would think, even though it's not really. It's just where exposition happens. Well, it certainly would be but, easy to get to uh, 19 and 23 Jump Street from there. Right. But the idea of a street called Jump Street <laughs> – like all mine are – the street name and the number – well, most just the street name. I was having trouble finding the num the numbers mattering, but the so idea. So which of like, which movie is it from? Twenty one or twenty two? I guess twenty two Jump Street. Kelly, stop fucking with Korean Jesus. All right. <laughs> <laughs> when I was looking at that, I watched the trailer for Twenty Two Jump Street again and forgot the fight scene with Jillian Bell and uh, and huh, uh, Jonah Hill. <laughs> yeah. Are we gonna fuck? Are we going to fuck? <laughs> She's so cute. I love God, her. I love that movie so freaking much. I love it so much. I, I couldn't watch that opening sequence where they're training and then they wind up at, at Balboa Lake 
arresting right. that dude. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, he, bicyclists. He does have the right to be uh, an attorney. <laughs> it's hard to imagine there was ever a time that we thought, I'm never going to see a 21 Jump Street movie. <laughs> now that's I look forward we, to him. Yeah, that's how we used to feel. Someone told me that at the end of 22 Jump Street, where it's, it does, it shows the credits for the next 50 Jump Street movies, and there's one where they're in space. Those are supposed to be all canon. Like, those are all going to be the actual movies. Canon? Yeah, canon. Those are How canon. would they? So you're saying they looked into the future and knew what movies were going to be pitched, <laughs> accepted, yeah. lit, produced, shot, distributed, released. They, they knew. So that's canon. If they violate, yeah. if they come up with something that wasn't in that 50, it'll never happen. Yeah, if Ridley Scott gets involved and goes, oh, we're going to add CG to this one. <laughs> we're going to tell how they got born. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to study how that 20 Jump Street, like, it's its origins. <laughs> Where the street came from. It actually came from outer Dave, space. Yeah. What was Dave Franco's father like, his character? <laughs> and Rob Riggles, before his dick got shot off. <laughs> what about that dick? What's that dick story? Hmm. All right, Dingus, what is your third favorite address in a movie? Here's a quote from it. Here you are, Dominique Bretadeau. It's for you. And the actual address is 27 Rue Mouffetard, and it's a Dominique Bretadeau's address, not Bread de Toe. Well, it's not in America, I'll tell you that much. From Bread to Toe, I don't know what it is. <laughs> gotcha! It is indeed not in America. It is from uh, the movie Amelie, and I love the way that these addresses. There's a, there's there's a there's three different address things that work in this movie that I really like. Um, the the one I'm choosing is the one that basically sets her destiny in motion because you know the the movie is sort of titled "The Fabulous Destiny of uh, Amelie uh, Amelie Poulain. Um and this finding this address uh, and finding out who Dominique Bretadeau is and delivering this little rusty box of his childhood memories to him is what sets her on her course to change, to basically changing the course of her life and, and deciding to be this little sprite that helps all of these different people and helps her fall in love. It's, it's, it, it changes the course of the movie, finding this particular address and finding it because of Mr. Glass, the glass man who is painting all of these, who is painting this painting over and over again all of his life. Um, and uh, so the the first address you hear is actually, and I just love the way, the reason that I like these addresses is that they're different than addresses that we have here. And I really have an affinity for addresses because I like actually sending letters to people. Uh, so I, I like that uh, the narrator at the beginning is talking about this fifth floor flat, 28th Avenue, uh, Trudain, Paris, or Paris 9. Uh, the way that the address is laid out is different than the way it's here. Like right, when you have I send, to know which Eridon's meant meant. It's right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And I and I love the way all of that is laid out. So at the beginning, there's this this guy who's just returned from his his one of his very dear old friends' funerals, and he erases the name of that guy from his address book, and it's a very emotional moment for him. And that's where it happens in this particular flat. And then you see Amelie trying to find this guy, uh, Bredoteau, uh being told this 
that that's the name and she's holding her address book and she's crossing out the names as she goes to the various addresses but finally uh the glass man hands her the 27 rue Mouffetau, and this is dominique bretado and that's important to her because it leads her finally on her quest to change things for all of these people and helps her fall in love with you know kim kim Kampois. so i it, it's the, the addresses in this movie and the address books, the two address books in particular, um, are what make Amelie my number three. All right. Isn't that the movie where Jennifer Jason Lee sings Girls Just Want to Have Fun? And she's yes. like Claymation? <laughs> yes. That's Anomaly Lisa. Anomaly Lisa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Marlene Marlena. Uh, Kelly Watt, uh, what's the name of that way, movie? Uh, if, if that were the case, Amelie's face in that situation would be so much more realistic than the face of Jennifer Jason Lee's character in Anomalisa. Because when uh, Amelie is having to go through having sex with the dude, she's just sort of like giggling like, this is kind of silly. Yeah, been on that type. I love her face. She's just, oh man, she's so great. She's so great. Thank you. You're welcome. What was Tom going to say? Something interesting? Probably. Uh, I don't remember. Well, he was we'll going to say his number two. Yeah, my uh, it's another one where I, in thinking of addresses, I was like, okay, well, that movie has a street name. If I can figure out the number on the house, I'll pick that. Oh, this is going to be uh, Kelly. This is going to be Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. What? Oh, yeah. yeah, he lives at eighteen uh, mm-hmm. Cherry Tree Lane, which is across <laughs> the street from Mary Poppins. It's awesome. They hang out together. <laughs> she flies in her umbrella. They fly in a car. They fly in a yeah, car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He's always so, flying. Dick Van Dyke. He's flying. This through. address is, and I also, while while trying to find this out, realized, well, okay, the address is 87 Searleby Court. Ah, Olivia oh. Searleby. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the actual name of the movie does not exist. It's the name of a boulevard, and there's no such boulevard in this city. I saw that online. I was like, wait, that can't be true. It's such an easy name. Went to Google Maps. Sure enough, this movie's name is not the location where the movie takes place. It's a trick. They're tricking you. So my address is 87 Searleby Court. But the movie is called London Boulevard, which doesn't exist anywhere in London, uh, and it's a movie that I don't think either of you have seen, but I've decided uh, you both need to see, especially Kelly Wand. Uh, do you oh. guys know what London Boulevard is? Like, Does that evoke anything for you? Because it, it did very poorly critically. It's like everybody I seems to have know, hated this. But it makes me think of the movie with the word London in it that you asked Kelly to watch, and then he didn't watch the end of it. Right. That's the, no, that's the other way around. I watched it and told him, and he – I hadn't watched the ending. Right, and I watched it all the way to the ending, uh, which is I think is dumb. I, I forgot if I hated it or loved it. No, I hate that the ending's dumb, right? And what's the name yeah. of that movie? That's just called London. There's no boulevard involved. Oh, There's, okay, so they hadn't made the street. It's Jessica Biel, Jason Statham. Yeah, it's Jason Statham's best best acting as a coked-up uh, um, guy who can't get an erection. That's his character power. I found uh, it a bit on that day. <laughs> All right, so, so I didn't know. Uh, I, I did. I know. Other than that, Tom, I don't know what London Boulevard. So London Boulevard is based on. It's the kind of book that I think Kelly Wand would read. He's an Irish guy who writes like hard-boiled, like noir detective fiction stuff, uh, and he's got a series of like. Uh, Ian Glenn was on. He's like Jack 
Frost or something like that. It's some TV series where Ian Glenn plays a detective based on this guy's uh, books. His name is Bruin, Bruel, Ken Bruin. Ken Bruel, yeah. something like that, yeah. Uh, so this is one of his books, and it's not part of a series. Uh, and it's, it's your standard – so the the gangster gets out of prison and he wants to go straight, right? He, he comes out of prison in London, and all of his buddies are like, okay, we got a job for you. And he's like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a go of it straight. And he gets pulled into the life of crime, and he doesn't want to be it. So he's the he's the repentant gangster who doesn't want to get back into a life of crime. It's a bit of a cliche. He he meets a woman and falls in love with her. Also a bit of a cliche. Uh, the woman he meets is a super glamorous dame, very noir, mm. uh, and. It, in this movie, she's a famous actress, and she's really neurotic. She's kind of weird, and he gets hired as her bodyguard, and that's the straight job he wants to take. But the local crime lord is trying to pull him into a life of crime. All this stuff is pretty hackneyed, right? Like that, you've seen a million times. What's, what's really good about London Boulevard uh, is the cast, which I'll tell you about in a minute, and how this movie ends up like it's the payoff that really makes all of this worthwhile. Uh, so London Boulevard was written and directed by William Monaghan, who is known as the guy who adapt who adapted Infernal Affairs for Martin Scorsese's uh, The Departed. He got an Academy Award for that. Uh, after that, he's done a few scripts, but then he finally wrote this adaptation of London Boulevard and he directed it. Uh, got this made. Since then, he's made a piece of trash called Mojave with Oscar Isaacs in it for some reason. Mm. Uh, but in London Boulevard, he has Colin Farrell and Kira Knightley. Uh, mm. And they're really good. It's one of those great, yeah, Colin Farrell can really act kind of things. Uh, I normally am not that enamored of Kira Knightley, but she's basically playing herself in this, which is really good. Uh, my favorite thing about this movie, I think, ever since the movie Naked with Mike Lee, I don't think David Thewlis has been done justice as an actor. He hasn't really been given an opportunity to shine like he did in Naked. Uh, here, I think that's an exception. This is some great David Thewlis stuff here. Um, otherwise, it's got uh, Eddie Marson, a, a great Ben Wishaw performance as a super oily, annoying sidekick dude, which is not Ben Wishaw's normal bag. Uh, Ray Winstone is in it. Um, but at any rate, I thought that the house where Kieran Knightley is holed up and basically besieged by paparazzi, and Colin Farrell's job is to protect her, uh, I thought that that was going to be a, an address on London Boulevard. It is not. It is 87 Surlby Court, which you can only see in a scene. Like you see the name of the street. You see the number on, on, on the house. Uh, London Boulevard, nowhere mentioned. I don't know if in the novel it's explained why it's called London Boulevard, but it's not a thing that exists. So I chose the address from that movie. Well, that could just be as a generic term, like this is a London Boulevard. Right. Or, oh, oh, I see what you're saying, Dingus. Like, but it's not, though, like it's American, st American Street, like American but, Beauty, but American it's, it's, Street. Yeah. But then it would be 87 Surlby Boulevard. It should be London Court if they wanted to take that angle. Well, well, if you were. London Court has totally other connotations, but Boulevard might mean the same thing as street to us. Like, this is an American street. You okay. can call it an avenue or whatever. Right, right. I see what you're saying, though, but I guess that makes sense. <laughs> what about Lane? London Lane? Kelly Wan, that's yeah. ridiculous. That makes no sense. Oh, that's a good point. I see what you're saying. <laughs> I'm that's London true. Lane, P.I. All right, so I'm the only one on this podcast who's seen London Boulevard. I win. Kelly Wan. <laughs> What is your second favorite uh, street address in a movie? Those are not the victory conditions. Oh, okay. I thought I won. How many points do I get, though? 
we'll have to see at the end. All right. It's tight race, though, I feel like. <laughs> Shut up, Kelly. I'm going to give Whatever you a line you from London Boulevard. Imagine David Thewlis saying, it's a nice day, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like the scare. No, I want to see reminds it. reminds me of, you could see the, you could see exactly. the ocean from there if you could see it. Exactly, Dick. It's exactly what I thought of Luis Guzman's bit. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of those. There's a couple of just, just drop dead, perfect David Thewlis lines in London Boulevard. What do you mean Kira Knightley isn't – she's not acting in it? I didn't say that. I mean she's basically being herself. Uh, yeah, as what's a, that mean? She's a, a neurotic movie star. Oh. Uh, yeah, I like – I feel like I'm the only person who likes Kira Knightley. You're not. Uh, what was the thing with uh, Andrew Garfield, the organ donor thing? Repo man. Never let, go. <laughs> Never let me go. <laughs> I like that Kelly Warren goes to that Jude Law goofy science fiction thing. Repo yes. man. <laughs> Whereas Dingus knows what I was talking about. Uh, I liked her in that. Uh, she's great in that. She's also great in Beginning In. Oh, I should see that. Has Haley Steinfeld. I need to see that one yeah. of these days. All right. Also, her you know, amazing work in Domino. <laughs> and don't uh, forget yeah. the Caribbean's movies. Uh, good point. Yeah. Am I the only one on this podcast still who has seen Edge of 17? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I win so hard. I win mm. so, so hard. This is how um. victory feels. <laughs> All right, Kelly. Yeah. Guys in England, when they are knighted, they're sir. But then when you knight a woman, it's dame. Why is that weird? Because oh, dame, dame's just like broad. Or skirt. Yeah. Or skirt. No, there's yeah. Trim. There's, there's nothing like a dame. It was, it was like skirt dirty dirty gench. I guess Judy Dutch. <laughs> skirt dirty Dutch. I think I made my point, Dingus. All right. I think we I think we all see what I'm trying to get at here. My number two favorite address in a movie. Uh <laughs> I I might have dreamed the scene where they say the address, but if I'm <laughs> It's like a deleted scene. It's where you just dream it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 24 Event Horizon. If I remember right, <laughs> Event Horizon Lane, is there a scene in the Amityville Horror where they go to get a priest to exercise the house, and then he goes, what's the address? And then he's drinking coffee, and then they go, 112 Ocean Avenue. And then he goes, <laughs> Use his coffee all over the faces. There's a spit take in Amityville. Yeah, there's a spit take when in they go 112 Ocean Avenue, and that's the Amityville horrors. Oh, uh, which Amityville horror movie is it? The one with Margot Kidder? First one, yeah, Jim, Jim James Brolin. Right, right. And the one with there's like tar in the staircase, and he goes back to get the dog. I always like that. The dog makes it. Dog survives the Amityville horror. But, uh, well, that is the address of the uh, the the. I mean, it's bunk, but that is the address of the house. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I tar. like the uh, yeah this evil tar possession. That reminds me of something I forgot about the bodies in the movie we saw. But I really like that. Uh, that's the part of the address that no one knows because it doesn't sound scary at all. It's like Amityville Horror, and then it should be called One Twelve Ocean Avenue. 
like that's supposed to scare the shit out of like the devil's <laughs> house. One twelve Ocean <laughs> Avenue, you know, where the devil. Yeah, lives. Ocean Ocean Horror. That's a bit. Yeah. Imprecise. The most terrifying number one twelve, and the most terrifying, the most satanic of street names, <laughs> Ocean Avenue. <laughs> no. Like if the house didn't have the windows that look like eyes, you wouldn't even know what that house looks like. Right. It's the only thing about it that's scary. Although it is scary. It seems weird that someone built that house going, yeah, this is going to be so cute. These cute little windows up here with – everyone's going to love being across the well, street no, the, from that. The problem with those windows is it's on a, a horror movie poster with like a bed, a red background. Right. It's like a drenched in blood negative or something. That's it, in and of itself, it's kind of a cool look, those windows. It's scary, but if you think about it, it's also – that house is cross-eyed. It's like staring at its nose. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's, that's, now you've made the architect cry, Kelly Wand. Yeah. <laughs> Not only did you fail to scare me, but now your house looks retarded. Oh. What? Uh, uh, Kelly Wand, are any of the Amityville horror remakes good or reboots? I like the second one because everybody dies in it. Oh. But it's just because the son gets possessed. What's the name of the red-eyed pig? Because that always freaked me out. Wilbur? No, not Wilbur. It's a pig that looks in the window and he has red eyes. Brad? Wilbur. Wilbur. Jane? <laughs> no. Wilbur. Wilbur's Charlotte's Web, right? Wilbur That's says it's going to be great living here. <laughs> no, but Remember it's the pig. The Jody. Pig? Isn't it Jody? Isn't the pig yeah, with red yeah. eyes Jody? Mm-hmm. See? It's a Panic Room reference. Ah, right. Okay. Or a Phantasm reference. It's the older brother in Phantasm, Jody. Yeah. Or Soap. I think we've exhausted all uses of Jody. Yeah. All right, Igus. You're 12 Ocean Avenue. Mm -hmm. 112 Ocean Avenue. Yeah, no. That works for me. Terrifying. I I don't hear any sirens or I don't see any police lights. You seem to be okay, Kelly. Dingus just sounds exhausted, though. Like he's just. (laughs) No, I'm very excited. I just loved Wilbur because the first thing I thought, I didn't even think of Charlotte's Web. I thought of Mr. Ed saying Wilbur. (laughs) Oh, that's Mr. Ed's owner? Uh, But Wilbur was the name of the pig in Charlotte's Web. What happens to Mr. Ed at the end of the series? Does he get captured by the government and dissected? Is Is that what happens to horses? No, he becomes president. Oh, like in Animal Farm. No, like right now. Oh, that's that's the talking horse. Is, that's insulting to horses. I'm really upset that you did that. Ooh. So for instance, the talking mule and Mr. Ed, was that like a rivalry? Who would win in a fight? I don't know. That's I a think my mother, my mother at the car would win, probably. Horses even fight? Yeah, it would be like a rap it? battle. They would use their, their, their speech in rap battle against each other. They could argue. It would be like yeah. Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable guy on stage. At the same time. It would be called Half Mile. Seabiscuit. What's the other one? Secretariat. You and your sports references. I don't. Dingus, what's a what's a movie address that you really like so much yeah. so that it's well, not as good as Amelie, but it's better than whatever your number one pick is. All right, here's a quote from it. Then she tried to sit on my lap while I was standing up. Bad Santa. No. Uh, the address is 7244 Laverne Terrace, uh, and this is from the movie The Big Sleep. Uh, it's a 1946 uh, 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 movie by Howard Hawks. 
that I'm not sure Tom has ever seen. He's I've actually read. I've read the book. I read books. I don't watch grandpa movies. Yeah, who killed the chauffeur? That's the well, thing. Uh, actually, it's out. a novelization, Tom. It's not. Oh. It's a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Raymond Chandler wrote a novelization of that. Okay, exactly right. So I, I love this. Uh, there's there's two addresses that I really love in this movie. The one I'm going for is seven two four four Laverne Terrace, uh, and there's a couple reasons for it. It's that this this particular address. Uh, where A.G. Giger or Geiger, depending how you pronounce the alien guy's name, I don't know, uh, but A.G. Geiger's uh, address, he's renting this place from um, Eddie Mars. Uh, and um, yet his name is on the mailbox, which I really, really like that the name is painted on the mailbox. Unfortunately, the name is painted on the mailbox. I, 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 I freaking love The Big Sleep. I can watch it again and again. This is uh, one of those things I knew I was going to watch this. I was going to get to watch this movie again this week as I was looking at addresses because there's two addresses I love in this movie. Uh, and so the as as Philip Marlowe is pulling up to the house, you see the street sign for Liver and Terrace, and then you see the mailbox that says 460 A.G. Geiger. What? And then, yeah, I know it says 460, and I was like, oh yeah, 460. Is it 460? It can't be 460. But then later, when he's talking on the phone and telling the detective, all right, just come up to 7244 Laverne Terrace. I think it's just a movie mistake. You know, they just they showed that, and the script says this, uh, and I think that it was just one of those movie mistakes. So it's actually 7244 Laverne Terrace, but the physical. Uh, I, I like that there's this weird mistake. I like the little weird mistakes in this movie. I really love this movie so much. Uh, but it does bookend because it, th- this is the the house at the beginning where he has to go to figure out what's going on. I mean, it's not perfectly bookended because there's that great opening scene where he goes in and has um, Brandy in the orchid uh, orchid greenhouse where he's sweating profusely and has that whole opening scene. Which is awesome. Um, but he goes up to the house, and this is where the intrigue really starts to unfold. And then the final shootout, of course, ends up at the same place, 7244 Laverne Terrace. Um, but th- there's this other address that it's also used in the movie that's 28 Court Street, apartment 301. And this is uh, by, the, by this guy named Harry, who's been tailing him for the whole movie. It's played this, by this great actor named elisha cook jr i love this guy so much he's so good in this movie um but he gives the raw he gives somebody a phony address and so that's a phony address uh i'm just throwing that out there as a little bit of extra but the main address i really like from the big sleep is 7244 laverne terrace also known in the mailbox as 460 see back then when they made movies they didn't care about stuff like that they're just like people are gonna be grateful to see whatever we shoot and you know what? I'm kind of with them because these lines are so full of meat. Oh, my God, these lines. I could listen to this movie all day long. I love hearing these lines said. Oh, man, I just get so turned on by this movie, just the way they talk, the way they talk to each other. Oh, man, it's such a great movie. Uh, the guy who did London Boulevard, William Monaghan, uh, I don't know if anything will come to this, but a couple of months ago it was announced that Liam Neeson – is throwing his name in in a Philip Marlowe script that William uh, Monaghan is shopping around. What would you what? think of a Liam Neeson Marlowe? I could see that. All Why right. not? All right. Well, let's hope the studios. This isn't something that just sits on a shelf. 
Are you just messing around with me right now? No, like no, no. It was this. announced when I was looking up what, what William Monaghan has been doing. Uh, he did that horrible Mojave thing, uh, which is Garrett Is it based Hedlund. on a Chandler? Mojave isn't. Mojave is just Garrett Hedlund right. running around in the desert, running into Oscar, Oscar Isaacs, and they talk a lot. Uh, no, Marlowe, I don't know what it's based on. It's, I'm assuming it's, it's got to be based on a Chandler. I mean, it's Philip Marlowe. Uh, and I, I just – I mean all – there's just uh, – once you like when you're writing a script, big deal. Someone announces it. Who cares? But when you actually get talent attached, which is the case here with Liam Neeson and on Monaghan's script, then you're one step closer to actually being done. I don't know what it is, what it's about, what he's actually doing, but it's clearly for Liam Neeson to play Philip Marlowe. I'm well, okay he killed it as Hannibal. What? What? Liam Neeson as Hannibal? What are you on about? Uh, a team. Oh, that Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, and and Hugh, Dancy is, Hugh Dancy is face. Yeah. <laughs> Diggs, did you not think the same thing when Kelly Wan said that? Like when somebody yep. says Hannibal to uh, you? Yeah. I was totally confused. According to the State Department, Kelly Wan, I'm pretty sure the A-team is something that doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, as we learned, snatched. Yeah, as we learned in Snatched, the A-team is not a real thing. Just so you know. <sighs> Whereas Hannibal Lecter, on the other hand, the State Department he's, has no has no opinion on whether or not that's a real thing. He's stranger than fiction. <laughs> uh, my favorite address in a movie, and I actually looked this up. I actually it's one of the first things I thought of. Sure enough, and I knew it would be said. It said Clara's Day. It is thirteen twenty Southeast Banning, Apartment A. We don't know what city this is, although. This is a little weird. It's like when we're talking about the survivalist, at one point they mention a city name. Once you do that, you're sort of fixed in geography. And I didn't think this movie ever did this. Even though this is a movie shot in L.A., clearly there's skyscrapers in L.A., the main character lives on Wilshire Boulevard, it's LAX. All that stuff is pretty obvious, but I don't think they ever say L.A. But at another point in the movie, you see a zip code, and I looked it up. The zip code is in Wilmington, Delaware. Even though we're, we're clearly in L.A., uh, the phone number on somebody's card, it has that 555 exchange, but the area code is fake. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, it's the Wilmington, Delaware zip code for – this is another address in the movie – 537 Paper Street. Oh, that's my number paper, one. Paper Street Soap Company uh, exists there, and it has a Wilmington, Delaware zip code, which makes no sense, but – more importantly, the address I picked is where Raymond K. Hessel lives when Tyler Durden reads his driver's license. He says Raymond K. Hessel, and then to show him that he knows where he lives, uh, he, you know, he says the address, and he keeps his driver's license. By the way, you later find out he's got a bunch of these driver's licenses. Uh, in the commentary track on Fight Club, uh, Bonaventure, what's that guy's name, the producer, uh, said that Fight Club that he picked up Fight Club. It was sold to him based on the strength of from the book that Raymond K. Hessel scene. That someone brought him the book and said, "Here, just read this scene." That was his first exposure to it, and that's what got the ball rolling. Apparently, so my favorite address is Tyler Durden holding Raymond K. Hessel's driver's license, uh, and it's thirteen twenty Southeast Banning uh, Apartment A. But Kelly, Wand, yeah. your number one is the Paper Street Soap Company. Yeah, it's five thirty seven Paper Street. Yeah. Which is the place to live in. And the reason is Paper Street is apparently a cartographical term for a place that's on maps, but not in reality. So what? Paper Street's like a thing. Aha. Uh-huh. Pretty clever, right? For There's terms that don't exist. Right. Yeah. Paper There's Street. A, There's a that's the Alex Smithy of 
Geography. <laughs> of addresses, yeah. yeah. Addresses, Paper Street. So if you ever see Paper Street, you know it's not a real thing. It's the 555. It's so, kind of like those little subliminal Tylers in, in, in those frames that David Fincher inserts. It's a little bit of a yeah. fake address, right? What, what does that imply about the character, Kelly Wong? See? Hmm. Unreliable. Yeah. But in the book, it's 420 papers. No, oh, is it? Because I saw on the internet people were talking about 420, and I just thought it was a bunch of dumb stoners making that uh, up. Well, yeah. <laughs> One of whom is Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But then. It's weird that they didn't keep the 420. Especially David Fincher obviously was like, he's too mature for that sort of silliness, right? Yeah. Right. But yeah, Paper I, Street, that's a good one. That's a good get. Uh, I like in the, in the commentary, uh, David Fincher says that when he was editing it together, the editor he was working with hadn't read the script yet. And at one point during a car crash, uh, the editor says to David Fincher, you know, I think you screwed up because you have Brad Pitt getting out of the wrong side of the car and Edward Norton is getting out of the driver's side even though he wasn't uh, driving, so I think it's a mistake. And David Fincher was like, aha, yeah, see, did that on purpose. You <laughs> <had> the script. <laughs> yeah. I also noticed, like I, yeah. love, I so love watching bits of Fight Club and that Raymond K. Hessel scene when they're walking up to the liquor store, uh, Edward Norton has on a, a backpack and Brad Pitt's like, turn around, uh, and he unzips a pouch of the backpack, pulls out a gun, and Edward Norton is like, is that a gun? Like, he's surprised there was a gun. Like, if he had a gun in his backpack, wouldn't he know? Why is this character being surprised? Why would Tyler Durden keep his gun in Edward Norton's backpack? This movie makes no sense. Right. I love those little bits in there. Yeah, yeah someone who leaves Fight Club uh, ten minutes early and just spends the rest of their life going, it's, there's all these plot holes, I couldn't take it. So I left. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> And it's the same person who walks out of six sets a few minutes early. He's like, man, it's just so boring. He's just fucking no one. No one talks to Bruce Willis. It's so weird. He just doesn't interact with any other characters. It's I bet really it was weird. that same couple that walked out of Phase Seven when we went to see it. Yeah, <laughs> the machine gun. Yeah. yeah. All right. So Kelly Wan yeah. and I have the Paper same streets. number one. Dingus, are you on board with us? Dingus doesn't know about Paper Streets. He sounds dubious that it's a real thing. It is true because I'm looking at Paper Street. I did see that. I like Kelly's term. He's like cartographical or something. He, he made up a word, I think. That's a real Cartog- word. Cartographical? Cartography. So cartography. What's, the, what's the adjective? I understand that cartography is a word, but I love that Kelly Wand said the word carto- cartographical. It made me very happy. When I was a kid, my brother would say it snew the night before. I was like, no, it's snowed, fool. He's like, but yeah, but it's no and new. And I go, well... Shut up. I think he's trying to troll. Your brother was tricking you. You didn't fall fall for it, I see, Kelly Wan. Very good. No, I laughed at him. That's what happens when we try to trick you a lot. You laugh at us when we try to trick you. It doesn't work. You're too smart. Or I'm just not paying attention and just laughing arbitrarily (laughs) like a madman. But yeah, Paper Street. All right. And uh, Banning, Southeast Banning. The priest uh, spit take when he heard Paper Street, too. It's like the same day. I, I did know. I mean, I did think about the Paper Street address as one because I do pay attention to these things in movies. It's just because I do love it, addresses. Paper and I love seeing them. I like I like seeing the actual house address shown. Uh, I like you like seeing the it on an envelope in a movie. I like those things very much. So the Paper Street thing um, did occur to me. I just didn't know that it was a cartographical thing, and I had no <laughs> idea, Tom, about the the Delaware connection. I don't know was what's up with that. Originally, be set in Delaware or something. 
I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's it's uh, you know it. I hate the five 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 exchange. Like those yeah. drive me crazy. Takes me out of that it. exactly. That takes me out of it as well. So uh, the fact that Fight Club does five five five, but then throws in an actual zip code that you can look up. You know, it even has the fa- it's two eight eight, which is not a real mm-hmm. area code. Uh, but then an actual, an actual zip code. I'm I'm a little conflicted. But the five five five. It's like watching Bradley Cooper hold a doll. <laughs> <laughs> It's the telephonical version of that. Yeah, it is. It's the telephonical cartographical version. (laughs) (laughs) There's also paper towns, by the way. Oh, boy, Cara Delevingne. Tragical, historical. Eyebrows. Filthy voodoo cave girl from Suicide Squad. Dancing. (laughs) Dancing sinisterly. That was my favorite part. Come on. That was a great part. That was your favorite part of Suicide Squad? That was my favorite performance from Cara Delevingne as filthy dancing. voodoo cave girl. Yeah, sure. Uh, dancing. Uh, I mean, come on, uh, considering the other stuff she's done. So when she's in town, talking, when she's moving around, you're like, yeah. B plus. Yeah. All right. Dingus That's was, my number one, Dingus. Yep. Is yours also Fight Club, Dingus? Or have you, are we going to get a trifecta of Fight Club number ones? This will be no, the you reason you topic. You're not, because we had a listener who called dibs on that, so I decided to avoid Fight that. Club. I didn't realize you could do that, but oh, you, so, if somebody calls dibs, they call dibs. What are you gonna do? Dibs. All right. What did you just call, call dibs, dibs on, Kelly Wand? I don't know. I declined his bluff on uh, fucking Mary Poppins, or whatever he was saying. I accept his bluff on that. Chandler. I've never shandled. Chandled. Chandler. Chandler Bang. Chandler here's a Chandler. quote. Here's a quote from my number one choice for addresses in movies. Um, Sixteen thirty-four Racine. You know, I used to have a friend who lived there. Oh, that sounds familiar. Shit. So sixteen thirty-four Racine is uh, an address that is written on a matchbook, um, on the cover of uh, a matchbook that you would flip up. And this is from a movie that. Oh I've no! Been oh, can I guess? Can I guess? Stop! Stop! I, I think I know what it is too. All right, what? Okay, Kelly Wan. Uh, how can I? How can I prove that Kelly Wan and I both? Uh, Kelly Wan, on the count of three, say it. Ready? Uh huh. Three, two, one. Memento. Body heat. Oh shoot! <laughs> I think, All right. I think you might See, be right, Kelly Wan. I think Kelly's right. Dag I think it. the character's name is Racine. Ned Racine in Body Heat. And so no, it's. And he lives on a street that's named after him? Named after himself. Yeah. <laughs> Just what like I live at, at 10403 Morosky Boulevard. That's why she picks him. Yeah. Right. Biggest was either of us even close. Nope. Want Avenue. <laughs> All right. That was totally <laughs> worth it. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Dingus. That's Let's amazing, you guys. This is my this is my uh, my current um, uh, midnight run. This will be the Untouchables. This is my favorite address in a movie, uh, and this is the uh, address where uh, Sean Connery's character lives in the Untouchables. And the reason it comes up is because the assassin who sent to uh, take care of him as they say in the parlance, um, who's named Nettie, uh, has written the address on a matchbook. Uh, you know you know what I mean by matchbook. Everybody knows what I mean by this, right? 
What, you, <laughs> I guess, you know what, maybe people under 20 might not know what right. a matchbook is. Yeah. So a little paper matchbook, like you flip up the cover and you could write something on it. And you might write that down if you don't have a, like a notebook on yourself or whatever. Uh, and, since you're, and since in these movies they're constantly uh, lighting cigarettes, this is something that you can write upon. So he's written that address, and it's a little bit contrived for um, perhaps Mamet to decide to have that happen, but it's fine with me. Uh, and so Elliot Ness has uh, taken Nettie out of the courtroom because he knows that this guy is dirty, and he's also armed in the courtroom during the proceedings. Takes him out, has the cop frisk him down, and uh, – Flips open the matchbook and he goes, 1634 Racine, you know, he used to have a friend who lived there. And this is when the that whole revenge thing that happens that kind of corrupts Elliot Ness more than he's already been corrupted happens on the roof of the building. So I just love that matchbook, 1634 Racine. And I love that you can see that street corner there and that is an actual physical address that we're talking about in the movie. It's kind of cool they use the same address in Memento and Body Heat. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a very popular. It's like 555. 1634 is yeah. 555 for uh, movies. All right, Dingus, what do the listeners have as their favorite addresses? Uh, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we have uh, Sean Broussard who says, pre-postscript, after drafting this entire email, it occurs to me with almost utter certainty that my number three pick was the impetus for this three by three category as it directly follows Dingus number one from last week. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, so number three is 1060 West Addison. I love this address so oh, much. Yeah. Uh, I was so close on this, Sean Broussard. Yeah, me too. Um, I love this 1060 West Addison. That's Wrigley Field. <laughs> I love I love that so freaking much. So uh, Sean writes, number three, the Blues Brothers. After receiving their mission from God, Elwood's driving gets them pulled over, and the suspended license is pulled. When run, it shows outstanding warrants for 116 parking violations and 56 moving violations. The decision to take off results in the first of car chases that will dominate much of the film's remaining screen time. After escaping via mall... Jake believes they will soon be arrested at Elwood's Flophouse residence. Elwood reassures Jake their whereabouts are unknown to the police, and he falsified his license renewal with the address of Chicago Cubs home stadium, Wrigley Field. And there's a great moment, this is me talking now, where John Candy's character is like, I love that Wrigley Field bit, to the cops, and they're like, yeah, whatever. And then the so- Illinois Nazis show up there, and that's the payoff. They show up at Wrigley Field, because that's 1060 West Addison. I love that address. That's a great choice, Sean. Sean's number two. Uh, Come on, Jimmy. Think, think, think. What would Joe do? He'd shoot everybody and smoke some cigarettes. I don't have a gun. I can't do that. This is from The Last Boy Scout. Hmm. Wow. Good pull. This one involves ripping pages out of telephone books, but subverts the trope as the page serves as a notepad and not the source of information. Over a payphone, Damon Wayans gets out one of his team's office workers to look up the villain's address as he is a season ticket holder. He rips out the page he has written on and heads out. After Wayans has arrived, we learn that Bruce Willis's daughter has followed him by scratching the indentation of his writing from the page below. 
She's luckily brought her dad's handgun along so Wayne's can mount that rescue attempt. Hmm. I do not remember that at all. Sean. I don't either. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I trust I trust that it's true. Uh, Sean's number one is quote twenty fifty Vista Blanca, the ink blotter on the desk in the den in the basement of the house with the tacky mailbox. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Sean's number one is Brick. Henchman uh, Tug believes he has brought Brendan to the Kingpin's hideout without revealing its location. Brendan relays these specifics, and Short Fuse Tug knocks him out in short order. When he awakes, the pin, impressed with Brendan's fearlessness and observation, offers him a job, drawing him further into the underworld dealings at the center of his investigation. That's a great one, Sean. I like that. Yeah. Nice. Right, cool. And then he says something about Star Wars for his runner-up, which I will not repeat. Uh, next, we have Randy Connell, or Randy Connolly. Number three, the cupboard under the stairs, four privet drive, little winging, whinging, Surrey from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Number two for Randy, forty-two Wallaby Way, Sydney. <laughs> okay, I forgot this. <laughs> More recognizable as P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney, from Finding Nemo. And uh, number one for Mandy, 221 and a half Baker Street. The first one I thought uh, of, it's a small mouse hole just off the curb, housing a basil of Baker Street, a.k.a. the titular great mouse detective. Yeah. Keith Lee. Has uh, his best addresses are. I suspect this topic might have been inspired by the use of Wrigley Field as a wild goose in the in the Blues Brothers. Both of you are wrong. It was not inspired by that at all. It was inspired by Untouchables, sadly. Um, but I did love. I do love this pick. So Keith Leak's number three, Dressed to Kill, from 1980. Ooh. As good as this is, much much has not aged well. Oh, have you guys seen Dressed to Kill? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, like it's it. De Palma, yeah. De Palma is as well as any sort of Hitchcock-inspired guy back then. I think that stuff holds up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith says it's racist, sexist, okay. and confessedly transphobic. Mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, Keith. What it's are you going to say, Tom? I was going to tell Keith. I, I mean, that's, that's the thing about Brian. Brian De Palma was not uh, very politically correct. Yeah, I, I don't know. Right. Yeah, the, the killer is a creepy transgender person, and it certainly does dispatch Angie Dickinson violently, and Brian De Palma was accused of misogyny. But that, we've talked about this on the podcast before. De Palma says in the documentary there's just something about women in danger that people respond to differently than men in danger. So in his movies, a lot of times he'll play on that. Is that sexist? Well, I think it's – is the fact that we respond differently to women in danger than men in danger sexist? I don't know. Is exploiting that response for uh, for an emotional response in a movie, is that sexist? I don't think so. I think Brian De Palma is a gifted filmmaker. I think he uses the tools at his disposal, and if some of those tools are sexist, uh, that's not on him. That's on people in general. You know, seeing Angie Dickinson get sliced up is a lot more chilling than, say, seeing Chuck Norris get sliced up. Uh, I don't think it's, it's also a Hitchcock homage. Exactly, exactly. It's Hitchcock's sexist for killing Janet right. Leigh. 
Exactly. Yeah, I, I, no one does that. It's just you did it. Did, Brian De Palma was doing it at a time when movies were becoming more and more graphic, uh, and people were sort of chafing against that because they had more traditional ideas about movies. Uh, yeah, I think it's unfair to ding Dress to Kill for that. Brian De Palma got a lot of that back then, and Keith Leith, you and me are going to have a beer and argue about it one day. <laughs> It's also like I love movies that are time capsules of when they were made, and no, right. nothing like Dress to Kill will ever get made again. So it should be, you know, right. cherished just for that alone. Like you'll, it's it's a moment frozen in time. So yeah. <laughs> so Keith goes on to say, Nancy Allen plays what one, what one would call these days a sex worker, but is cheerfully referred to throughout the film as a hooker. She teams up with a recently orphaned Keith Gordon to track down who they suspect would be the killer. The scheme involves, and it's hard to believe, this of De Palma, a woman in lingerie. <laughs> Spoiler. Alan, so dress importunes Michael Caine's psychiatrist as a ruse to search his office. She finds the address of the suspect, 580 East 61st Street, New York, New York, 10049 on a card index and sequesters the card in her clothing, becoming a card index herself. Hmm. To put it bluntly, I'd like to ruffle that Rolodex. Hey, that's <sighs> sexist, Keith Leith. Yeah, what? See, <laughs> he just wanted this. He just wanted this. Yeah. I'm outraged. Very offended. To put it in police terms, I'd like to take down her particulars. Wow, he's he just doesn't know when to stop. And so forth. British. He, he starts by politically correcting us, and then he wands us at the end. Yeah, awesome. maybe he's tricking us. Number two. Remember the, the cab sig- driver? Oh, never mind. No. Number two, the signal from 2014. All right, I'm going to – I don't know any of what he's saying. Nothing dated about this film yet. I think this one, for so many films, I would have is that the Brendan Thwaite thing? I don't know. I guess he says oh. he wouldn't have watched it if not for mention on the podcast. I think you watched the wrong signal. And the AJ Bowen yeah. one is the good one. You have to watch the the one that Tom likes. If you watch the Brendan Thwaites ones where they go, that movie's uh, that movie's goofy. Go again. There's too many get, movies called that. He gets like so, magic like magic shoes and magic gloves, and they it's it's like a weird superhero a UFO abduction silly thing. Yeah, yeah it's a fake arm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a bionic arm that has powers. Why do you know that, Kelly Wand? I think you told me about it. Okay. <laughs> and that was the part that made me lose interest because I thought it was about aliens. And you're like, and then he gets a bionic arm. And I'm like, eh. and The part that should make you lose interest, just, just Brendan Thwaites. That's all you need to hear to make you – and then just move on. Something else next. It's not a good name to start from. <laughs> so, well, what, what does Keith say about this? Keith says – Okay, I'm going to need you guys' help. Hackers use IP traces to pinpoint a 1337 H4 Hexor to an address in the middle of nowhere, which seems to be a Fallout New Vegas reference. 1424 Penley LN, Good Springs, Nevada, where the hackers and their nemesis are a question open throughout the film until the final scene. I don't know what any of that means. anime. Yeah. H4XOR, is that supposed to be Haxor? Yeah. Is that yeah. Leet Haxor? Is he spelling Leet Haxor? Yeah. Keith, Keith, I've been standing See, up for you, dude, it. but this, you're, making, like say it. you're making this hard on me. 
Number one, I love this number one, by the way. This is great. Manhunter from 1986. <laughs> For years, the question of best Hannibal was contested fiercely by the thankfully small number who had nothing better to do with their time. The answer was, was recently settled. Mads Mikkelsen. Hannibal. Mads Mikkelsen. See what happened when we thought about Hannibal, Kelly? Oh, you mean Liam Neeson? Before this, Brian Cox had a good case, despite only appearing in a couple of scenes in this most 80s of 80s films. Lector exploits the analog phone tech of the era to freak his way. T-H-R-E-A-K. <laughs> right, right. We, yeah, we know that. We're nerds. Yep. I don't. Okay, into a secretary's call caddy and invite the Red Dragon to take a trip to the beach to 3680 DeSoto Highway, captive of Florida, much to Will Graham's chagrin. Now, I, I don't know this from the movie, Keith Leith, but I remember him learning the address from the book. Mm. Do you guys remember this from Manhunter? Vaguely. Mm. The it's book? Like, it, or the Manhunter's not a book. Well, Red it's said Manhunter when I read it. It's a... Uh-huh. All right. Next we have Arthur Joven Jelly. Number three, the great Muppet Caper. <laughs> that's when, how those words are meant to be said. <laughs> tersely and annoying. Tersely and annoying. Annoyingly. When Kermit asks Miss Piggy on a date, she wants him to think she is wealthy Lady Holiday. So she asks him to guess her address. The address he guesses is 17 Highbrow Street in London, (laughs) which also happens to be the home of John Cleese, who the two met when they break into the house. What? This movie sounds psychotic. (laughs) Let's watch it. Arthur's number two, The Departed. I hate that movie so much, but Arthur, good enough. The Departed. Sure to be an unpopular selection. You're right. But as a New England native... I have to pick the part where Della Hunt gives Leonardo DiCaprio the, Caprio the wrong address. Costello's henchmen have been given a tip that a mole within Costello's gang will be meeting with his police handler at 344 Washington Street in Boston. But when this information is relayed to Caprio, they accidentally tell him to go to 314 Washington. Even though he is given the wrong address, DiCaprio shows up at the right one. But what? The only person to notice this does not sell him out. Hmm. Right. Yep. It's true. Arthur's number one, The Prestige. Hmm. When Michael Kine, this is the second Michael Kane we have, is finishing a pint of beer, he notices a small playing card stuck in the bottom of his glass with the address 230 Aldwych, London, written on it. When Kane visits this, visits this location, he finds a formerly abandoned theater that Hugh Jackman has converted into a rehearsal space manned by a blind man, manned by blind men, sorry, where he can work on his new version of the transported man. What's great about the way this address is delivered is that Kane did the same thing to Jackman earlier in the movie. So Jackman, as he does with his magic tricks, reuses the method with some improvements, of course. It's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we have Dan Winningham. Hello, friends. Just one address for you this time. I am compelled to respond anytime. I think I may know what prompted this topic. If I know Dingus, I would be willing to bet that 
his number one of the others that made this topic happen was 1060 West Addison Street. No, you guys, it wasn't. It was what I loved, but it was not what inspired the topic. And I love that three people think it was. That's awesome. I know why Dan did, but this is grace. In the Blues Brothers, Elwood falsifies his home address and his license to 1060 West Addison, which, of course, is the location of Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> uh, he also says, Dingus, you may need to take a moment to explain the sports ball significance of Wrigley Field to Tom. I actually know this. It's where the Sox play. Oh, mm. man, you're going to be in so much trouble with so what? many people. Well, well, you, you don't call it playing? Are they that bad? They Say try to so. play. It's where they try to play. The Sox. Mm-hmm. How is that spelled, by the way, Sox? S-O-X. Like Elite Hacks or Socks or What I don't know is if they're white or black, though. I confuse them. I know there's a white Sox and a black Sox. I don't I can't. I don't remember which one's where. Eight men out. Yep, eight men out. One, one man leaves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate myself so much. I actually don't know. It's, it's Wrigley Field named after the chewing gum. Like, is it the chewing gum company? Like, there's a Verizon Stadium and whatnot. Is that what Wrigley Field is? Is it the same Wrigley that made chewing gum? Yeah, it's usually Juicy Fruit uh, Field. Is that true? Yeah. I actually think you're griefing me. What? I never grief you about baseball. It was Juicy Fruit Field. Come on. Yeah. That's when the Babe Ruth was there. And, it's, uh, the same, it's the same family. Yeah, like broccoli invented Juicy Fruit. Was it really called Juicy Fruit Field? I don't believe Kelly Wand. No, stop. Yeah, see, Kelly Wand, you. you can't trick me. You try. Vegas doesn't I, know anything. I'm way smarter about smart scenes. He thinks the Naturals the real World Series. He thinks that <laughs> and do you know who actually plays at Wrigley Field? An airplane. The Chicago Bears. <sighs> Nick Cubs. D writes, hi, guys. Cubs. Bears, mm-hmm. Cubs, one of them. It's something earth sign. Bear Cubs. Yeah. Nick D writes, hi, guys. <laughs> Number three, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Address of P. Sherman, the dentist who captures Nemo in Finding Nemo. The funny thing is, the address winds up not mattering because it's almost certainly the dentist's home address, and Nemo is taken to the aquarium in his office. Nick D. just broke Finding Nemo wide open. <laughs> Nick D.'s number two. I don't remember it having a number, but Rosemary and her husband move into a building called the Bramford oh, in New York yeah. City in Rosemary's Baby. What a great I name. I would have chosen – yeah, but I don't think there's a number given. Like there's the part where they – the police or the woman's commit suicide are out front, but I don't think you ever see a number or it's mentioned. Yeah. I thought it was Chalky Undertaste Boulevard. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wan. <laughs> yeah. Apartment, think, what have you done with its eye? I think they just <laughs> refer to it as as the crib. Um, but there's a number of like places like that in A Big Sleep 2 that are just called The Whatever. Uh, Nick's number one, the address that is burned into my brain is the one that Kevin Klein gives when he makes the following anom- anonymous, anonymous, anonymous phone call in A Fish Called Wanda using a fake British accent. Yes, hello. Sorry to trouble you, but I thought I might interest you to know that Hatton Court, Hatton Garden Bank robbery was pulled off by Mr. George Thomason, who lives at Flat 3, Kipling Mansions, Murray Road, London, West 9. Is it weird that he gives the postal code? I don't know how they do addresses <laughs> in London, but it sounds neat. Because the police might want to write to him first before they yeah, arrest right. him. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Nick. Uh, and uh, let's see. We have Chris Markinson. Hey, guys. Here are a few addresses that I like. Number three, 2991 North State Preston, Idaho. ID is Idaho, right? Yeah. yeah. This is the address of Rex Quan Do Dojo in Napoleon Dynamite. Where <laughs> 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 after one week, you'll be prepared to defend yourself with the strength of a grizzly, the reflexes of a puma, and the wisdom of a man. <laughs> Chris Markinson's number two is 4808 Bonhill Road. Lou Bloom gets his big break at this address when he records the aftermath of a murderous home invasion in Nightcrawler. Oh, oh wow. Very nice. Great one, Chris. When uh, Chris the White is, House. Chris That's is number friend. one, 1320 Southeast Banning Apartment A. Hmm. This is the address of Raymond K. Hassel's small, cramped basement apartment in Fight Club. Oh, so many Fight Club addresses, huh? To be fair to Chris, he called dibs on this. Sorry, guys. Dibs. dibs. Thanks, guys, Chris. Yeah, but he didn't, he didn't call dibs on the Paper Street address. So Kelly Wan's in the clear. I'm just going to have to come up with a different one for my number one pick. That's diff dibs. And finally, Tom. What? I'm going with 10 Cloverfield Lane is my favorite. Yeah. Baxter Building and Fantastic Four, Rise of the Surfer. Oh, who wrote that? That's a good one. Well, that's Pat. not an address. What's that the number? What street and number is the Baxter building on? Yeah, what's it say? Doesn't. Uh-oh. Wait, okay. who's that? That was Chris Markinson? Good work, Markinson. Chris All Markinson right. chose the Baxter building in Fantastic No, Four. no, this is... This is from somebody named Haxor. What? What's happening? I'm so confused right now. Dingus, what are you too. doing? I think totally Tom, the podcast Tom sent himself uh, an email. Ah. Uh. Wait, I sent myself an email? <laughs> what? Boy, am I confused. I am we have too. an email to our email address that says Baxter Building and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer from Haxor. Oh, and you're, you're just assuming that I'm Haxor? That makes sense. You, Why not? <laughs> Why would I choose Baxter? <laughs> I would Why choose Avengers Tower before I choose Baxter Building. Avengers Tower. Good point. Is that a thing? Wait, Stark Tower. Wait, where, 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 yeah. Baxter Building. Do you guys have any runners up? Uh, Iron Man 3 gives out his address. Like when uh, at the beginning of Iron Man 3, he's uh, there's a bunch of reporters like, hey, what do you think of the, the Mandarin terrorist? And Tony Stark does the thing where you come to my house, you come at me at 10880 Malibu Point, 90265. I'll leave the door unlocked. Oh, being, he does. That's being great. Super tough. Yeah, it's kind of good goofy one. actually, but. All right. It's good. And of course, Ten Cloverfield Lane, my number one pick. Do you know what a one four zero seven Graham Malkin Lane is? The Xavier Academy for Gifted Children. Very good. How do you know that? I looked some of these things up because I was thinking of what to pick. Uh, that's in Westchester County, in New York. And don't in Logan, don't they reference what happened in Westchester? Maybe. So is it a reference? Like, is, they, like I'm wondering, are they referring? Because when they say Westchester, do they even say Westchester County? But I'm wondering if the implication is that something happened at the actual academy and that it got wiped out. 
I'm not sure I knew that when we talked about it on the movie, on the on the podcast. Uh, how many runners up do you have for favorite street address? Zero. All right. Well, there we go. Problem solved. Dingus runners up. Uh, no, I'm good. All right. Next week, the three by three is your favorite. Uh, okay, so we saw Alien Covenant uh, last yes. year. Yes. Oh, yeah. Remember how good. Yes. It is? So there's a moment in Alien Covenant where they're being attacked, right? And a hooded figure comes up and saves them by Ugh. shooting flares. And then later the hooded figure throws back his hood and, whoa, look who it is. I don't want to ruin it for you. But it's a face reveal. So I want your three favorite face reveals, like when a hood gets thrown back or a mask is taken out. Even it could be just someone turning around. It's like, whoa, look, it's a revealing a face. You pick your three favorite. You send those in to 3x3 at quarter to 3.com. And we read them live on the air in this pre-recorded podcast. Dingus, Kelly Wand, you guys pick your favorite face reveals as well, and I'll also show up with three. Can if it you be want an to... ass? Pardon? Can it be an ass? Kelly Wand is an ass a face. Well, I mean, some people's match. My dogs. Okay, no, it's not a face. <laughs> Only genitalia are. That Kelly Wand. <laughs> what? Well, Kelly Wan, cops will be on duty. I'm just letting you know. I'd hate for you to get in trouble with the law. All right. It's just a lot of wiggle room. Kelly Wan, what Uh, movie are we seeing? Did you take anything off the table? Nobody's picking Alien Covenant, are they? If you really want to pick it. No, there's some technical things that are going on on my computer right now. So I I apologize. I'm just asking if you took anything off the table. Nope. If you really want to pick the reveal of of who it is who saves them in Alien Covenant, go for it. We will laugh at you. It would have been funny if, it, if the, he pulled back the hood and it was an alien. Well, it's always a hooded character means you're going to – the character under – like it's significant who it is. When right. somebody in a movie doesn't pull down the hood, it's because the director's like, ah, you're never going to guess who this is. Get ready. So well, he, what about when they pull the hood and then you still don't see who it is, like in The Strangers? What? Hang on, let me write this masks? down. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kelly Wan, you know, you'll have to bring that up during the 3x3, three three, won't you? Okay, Hood Reveals. What movie should we see next week? Uh, Wonder Woman, Kelly Wand? Uh, see, here's the thing. It's not yeah, coming out in Germany because the Germans are the bad guys in Wonder Woman, I think. So uh, they're protesting. It's not coming out till Father's Day. All right. Because well, I guess it's we the can't fatherland. Be- right. So should we then do Baywatch? Should we do the Pirates of the Caribbean movie? We could do Baywatch. Oh. I've heard it's really good. We're doing War Machine, which is on yes. Netflix. David nice. David Michaud's latest movie. Kelly Wand's super excited. Either War that or he's quoting Dingus's excitement. It, he's my favorite uh, Marvel Iron Man character. War Machine. David Michaud. Yeah. 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 One of my favorites too. Uh, join us for that podcast. Uh, if you if you see War Machine on Netflix, send us your thoughts. Also at 3x3 at quarter to three dot com in a separate email. We would love to read them. See what you think. So join us next week for our War Machine podcast and our three by three of favorite face reveals. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian Moloski. It's Christian Moloski and Kelly Wand. Michael Sarah would make a good Kushner, like for the Fourth Omen movie. <laughs> One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one
Hey, Dingus, uh, I heard there's this really cool dove exhibit at the museum. I guess you could say it's a real coup. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! 112 Ocean Avenue. <laughs> it's Vin Diesel as the priest. Because he's like a kick-ass priest. Like uh, Dwayne Johnson in Air Force One. Huh. That's not a thing. What? Everything's a thing. That's why they call it money. No. <laughs> the right. sound of Kelly saying something.